With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Support for this episode has been provided by Ratio Keto-Friendly Dairy Snacks. If counting macros makes your head spin, count instead on a snack by Ratio. They've done the math for you, so you can spend less time studying the label and more time enjoying your day. Creamy and delicious, try strawberry and vanilla for two grams of carbs and a unique combination of sugar and protein. Interested? Ratio Keto-Friendly Dairy Snacks are now available in the yogurt aisle at Walmart. Always consult your physician before starting an eating plan that involves regular consumption of high-fat foods. out to Essien! Oh my goodness. It's a counter attack. Here's Dini Dropper. And now Kidney in the middle. Dropper goes! Stretch it. 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 What's happening? Welcome back to Chessie Hour. Another week, another week of content from the Touchline Fracas Network. All things Chelsea, all things SW6, all things Stamford Bridge. Myself, Yassin James, this week I'm joined by Meads. What's going on, bro? What's popping? Not too bad, man. How are you? I'm good, I'm good. Still looking for that PS5 pricing, but yeah, all good. Uh, Jermaine, what's going on? Uh, all good, brother. How are you? Alhamdulillah, man. All good. Joe, what's happening, mate? Yeah, all good, mate. How you doing, man? All good, all good. So, I mean, I was scouring the internet and I was a bit let down by there not being a blockbuster headline on a Thursday. <laughs> um, we were expecting it after like three of the last four, maybe smashing it out of the park. But there's still, still a few things to discuss. Um, and I think the first place we can kind of start off really is a little little transfer roundup. Um, I don't know if it's just because the season's getting closer and journalists are wanting to amp up interest or 
there genuinely is moves being made and and um, it's not just all noise so I mean working through from the the most complete to the least complete um, Timo Werner's move according to Rafa Honigstein is is very much done and, and complete and he's, he's said yes and he's definitely joining this and the other but COVID-19, travel restrictions, doctors not being able to fly out there, um, 14-day um, quarantines on return, and little things about the, the, the release clause being a month later and misreported and wanting to wait till Leipzig season's over. And there's a lot of um, I'm in an area and I'm seeing a bit of the fan base get a little bit on the edge of their seat about it. What, what are we thinking there? Is, is there still a window for a team to snoop in and snatch that one or, or we just need to sit back? I mean, I'd be shocked simply because Timo has given his, his uh, verbal agreement to Frank and um, apparently a lot's been said about Frank's influence in him actually coming to the club. Um, it's quite similar to um, the Ziyech situation as well because Ziyech has said uh, he's credited his move a lot to Frank Lampard and how he feels like he could improve him. Um, but I think it would be, what's the word? It would be unethical if Timo was to then go to another club after everything that's apparently been agreed. Um, you don't, you, you'd imagine that that's pretty much done. Um, I like think, William? Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Unless <laughs> a situation like that arose where, you know, but William actually had a medical at Tottenham. You know? This is the thing. And I'm pretty sure Ziek though, got, I might be wrong, someone correct me. Didn't we announce that subject to a medical? Yeah. So yeah, I, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm interested why they can't announce it subject to a medical or anything like that. I'm sure there's reasons, but... It must be because of the release clause. We've not, I don't think we've activated it yet. It's not been done yet. So I feel whilst there's agreements that it's going to be activated, I don't think the actuality, I don't think it's actually happened as of yet. But all parties have agreed, all parties are pretty much, you know, in the, on the same, you know, wavelength. So it'd be a shock for it to not happen. Um, but here we are. It's going to be interesting, man. Very, very interesting. I think I'd ever be able to listen to Coppen Fracas ever I'm again. I'm so disgusted. Yeah. I'm so disgusted. But you know, the funniest thing is, because Timo was so set on going there, um, if they were to come back in for him, I don't know. I don't know. Because I, I was reading a lot today in regards to um, him potentially being that like fourth choice. And um, obviously, for us? No, for, um, for, for Liverpool, them. if he was to go. Um, so it wasn't just on the financial terms that they didn't want to buy. And they didn't want to buy a player, considering the economic market. They didn't want to buy him and then for 50, 60 million pounds and be him be a bench player. And I guess the idea was when Salah and Mane go for the African Cup of Nations in January, that he would then slot in and then fill the void when they go. But now the African Cup of Nations are going to be moved to summer. That's probably not going to happen anymore. Unless it kind of gave us more of a, more leverage when it comes to the mm. negotiation. So, I don't know. It'd be, it'd be a shock for me if he was to, to go to Liverpool now. But, you don't know, stranger things have happened in football. For sure, for sure. Uh, this is one I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw at Jermaine just because I know he's been... Uh, Jermaine, I know, I know you can go with the win sometimes, yeah? I know, uh, I know you can go with a win sometimes, but it came out in um, in AS today in Madrid-based publication that this this little Kante issues reared its head again um, about 
about, you know, the injuries, the club might be concerned that they're a little bit chronic. And, you know, they, my, my interesting bit that I found about it was I remember when we did discuss the idea of a life after N'Golo Kante for the club, mm. we kind of mentioned the fact that he's, what, tightest earn a 300k. And it's, it's a bit of a funny economy for that to run if you have a guy who's maybe not a pure match winner in the most conventional sense and is missing more and more games and is nearing 30 and that and he's the highest earner point blank mm. um, without anyone really close to him. So when yeah. they've now put that, they said reviewing the club's wage structure in the, uh, in the article, that's the only thing that did raise my eyebrow a little bit. Um, so where do you stand on that now, Jamink? I know, I know the, the club's kind of gone either way. The fan base has gone either way. I remember the first few months of the season, Jorginho and Kovacic looked quality. Then people realised that they got sucked on the counter. And it was like, oh, sorry, Ngolo. We really apologise for that, mate. Can you uh, fix your knee? <laughs> yeah. where, where are you on that now, Jermaine? Because I know, I know you've... Um, I spoke about it like, quite sides, early yeah. on. Yeah, because I, like, I do remember like, at the beginning when, it, when, it, when he first started getting injured. Um, even after his performances against like, Liverpool in the Super Cup, and that, I did say if, if he was going to keep getting injured like the way he was this season, and it was going to prove to be like something that was going to be quite regular like throughout his career, that remaining part of his career. I did say that it would, it would make sense, especially from a business point of view, when you look at the way Chelsea are trying to rebuild, it would make a lot of sense to, to, to sell Kante. And the reason, the reason why I say that as well is it's not just because of um, like his, his form, obviously, with, with injuries and stuff like that as well, but it's also to do with, some of the emerging players that we have in the squad. If you look at players like Kovacic, for example, last season we didn't have a Kovacic that was playing out of his skin the way he is. Mm. And then we also didn't have a Billy Gilmore coming through the way he is. So you see what I'm saying? So it's like, I think last season, if you'd have mentioned selling Kante, a lot of people would have been like, we could, we could never sell Kante. Like, that's insane. But then I think people are starting to see now that, like, we'll actually be okay if we sell Kante. We, we wouldn't, it wouldn't be a problem. Like, we wouldn't struggle. Do you see what I'm saying? I don't think we'd struggle without Kante. I think we'd still be able to win games. I think we'd still be able to win games. And the reason why I say that as well is because I see a lot of people now trying to shift Loftus-Cheek into the double pivot. And it's like, you can't really... You, <laughs> I don't, I don't, like, you can't really be that fussed about Kante to, to, be, to be shifting Loftus in there when you've got Kovacic and Gilmore and Kante as well. Like, it's, it's, it's either got to be Kovacic and Kante starting, period. Or, you know, like, I, I, don't, I don't see how Kante would work about the whole season, getting injured, I mean, in and out. Like, it's, I don't think he'll play, he'll, he wouldn't have a better season. Me, me right. he's sipping his water like he's just I conceded mean, the, a goal. So I know he's going to come back. Is, yeah. I feel like the, this notion of Kante even being injury prone is a madness. Simply because he's only had one season where he's had yeah. injuries. Yeah. And this injury stems from the initial injury that he, he faced. And because we rushed him back for the Europa League final, he started getting injuries. And because he was never fully right, he never fully had time to recover. And even with Frank Lampard, last season, kept trying to rush him back. And when you're a willing player like Kante to play, you're going to get injured again. That's what happened. I think the, I think the only issue with, with Kante is the nature of the injuries. There was... 
if you look back at the history of them, it was one which was an unspecified muscle in- injury, five games. Another one which was unspecified, five games. Then it was an ankle, four games. Uh, and then I think the knee problems and the hamstrings were the ones after the Europa League, around the Europa League uh, final last year. So I think the hamstring was what actually kept him out of that for, for a couple of games. And then knee problems were sort of reported after that throughout the summer. He didn't miss games, but it was, it was late back. Um, Apparently it was, his, so it was it's, both. It's, it's, it was here both. and there different little bits. Yeah, but his his I'm pretty sure the the hamstring injury was as a result of the knee injury that he suffered. Yeah, you know I mean, I don't think mm. it, because it, it it worked in tandem, and he got injured as a result, and that never really cleared up. Like throughout the summer, mm. that never really cleared up. Now, one thing I will say is it's very easy to label him injury prone when in actuality he isn't. He's just had an injury hit season. And people are too quick to want to discard a players that have had those kind of moments. I don't understand it for me, especially when he is by far and away our best player. I feel like Kante is a million, a million percent our best player, a million percent our only world-class player. So wanting to sell him when he's entering the peak of his career, for me, is nuts. Like, I, I do see it. Like, you wouldn't want to... Like, even if Hazard was having injury hit seasons, you wouldn't want to sell him. You wouldn't. Like, no matter how much, because I don't believe in set. I, I generally don't believe in selling your best players. It just doesn't make any sense. Not if they're fully fit. Not if they're fully fit and playing thirty-eight games though. Right, but that's just the that's, first that's time. My point is, this is the first time, so it's very difficult I, for anyone to say, "Ah, oh, well, it's not difficult." But I find it kind of like you can't. It doesn't make any sense to me. You can't say he's injury prone after just one season where he's had injuries. I, so here, here, yeah. And then you can't, and then you can't say, "Oh, if he's if he's fit." Well, of course, that's like most players. If you if everyone's fit, then surely you're gonna play every game. But he's not been fit for one season out of however many seasons he's played. So I think it's quite that's true. That's, too, that's true. Too, but would, would, you, would you? Would you? Would you? Yeah. If if right now you mm-hmm. had to make a decision mm-hmm. and the club came out and said we need to. The, the way they've the one way they've got to raise funds for for someone like Havertz who's going to cost eighty to ninety million yeah let's right. just say if they said that they needed to sell Kante to bring in Havertz no. what would you do? no you'd, you'd say no I'd say no you'd say no to that I'd say no a million percent I'd say no well, I'd say no why why no no, no. I'd say no comfortably. I think I the argument. I think the argument means you brought up about it's only one injury hit season. The only thing I'd say to that, yeah, mm-hmm. is it's the first one is always only one, yeah. and it will be in, if it, if you were at a club and you had information that we're not privy to, and you kind of thought, I don't know if this is going to become a bit of a thing, um, and if there's two injury hit seasons, then the investment you're getting back depletes massively so I think you're right I think if, if, if it's a one-off and he's had the COVID rest and everything like that I think it's interesting but I'm just saying I personally wouldn't want Kante gone I think the power rankings we're going to get into later agree with you that he's unanimously sort of our best player but I do think it's interesting if this is something that they expect to continue what I'll say is to that though yeah is that people are giving their opinions based on none of that information so people aren't getting that expert proof like they've not got they're not privy to that expert information they're yeah, not yeah. privy to are oh, are these injuries look um like terminal you're you're gonna he's gonna consistently have these injuries for the rest of his career well of course if if that's the case then fine cool sell him 
But whilst you don't have that information, for me, it is crazy to, to entertain the idea of selling our only world-class player. And by, he's not, it's not even like you can argue, he is by far and away our best player. So I, think, I, I, think the other, I think the other thing that would be important as well, I think the other thing that would be important as well, though, is that when Kante has played as well, like his best football for us, um, even last season and, and this season, it was in the 4-3-3, like mm-hmm. against Liverpool, it was the 4-3-3. And, and Lampard doesn't seem to be going with the 4-3-3. And, and this is another worry. If he, if he doesn't go with the 4-3-3, yeah, mm-hmm. like he might be looking at it as if to say, Oh, I know Lampard think, like, thinks that Kante is our best player already because he said it many, many times before. Mm-hmm. But even in his system, in the 4-2-3-1, no matter how many times Lamp says, oh, Kante is our best player, it's not guaranteed as well that he's going to have those same performances that he has in, the same, in, the, in that 4-3-3, not guaranteed that he's going to have the same performances in that 4-2-3-1. So if Lampard, if, we've seen it. We've seen, we've seen players play better there than Kante in the 4-2-3-1 this season. We've what seen would, it. What I would say to that, is, look, whilst, again, it's very difficult to give a reference on Kante's performances last season because he was injured. So you're not going to get a fully fit Kante. You're not going to get the best Kante, regardless of where you play him, whether you play him in a three or or two. Now, if there was one player who I think is very capable of adapting anywhere in midfield, it's Kante. He's shown three times that he's able to adapt. So he could play in a two, play in um, a three-four-three under... um, under um, Conte, he played in a three under Sari and played three and two last season. So I don't think that, I don't think it's an issue. I really, I genuinely wouldn't think that's an issue. Playing in a two, he played in the midfield two. Uh, I don't know. No, I don't think, I don't think it's an issue, but I think, I think what it is, is if they feel like, say for example, where they've got a more of a problem. So right now, Havertz coming in solves a lot of problems where we've had major problems, yeah? In terms of creativity, in terms of goal scoring, yeah? So, we, we bring him in and we create, we get rid of a massive problem. A massive problem. But getting okay. rid of Kante in the, the 4231, one step, one step. Getting rid of Kante in the 4231, that doesn't necessarily create a massive problem for Lampard. Okay. You so this, is thing, this is one thing that I, I completely disagree on. So, in terms of Kante, again, we've already spoken about his defensive qualities. Nobody in our team, nobody has the defensive capabilities that that... Well, man. that's what I was going to ask. Do you mean to mention people coming so through? Do you, mean, do you about, see anyone who can play that role? When we talk about... Because when, when we talk about, oh, um, we're not going to suffer necessarily without Kante, really? Because our midfield, whenever we're playing a 4 2 3 one, throughout the season, has suffered massively. And more, more often than not, Kante is not playing. We have suffered massively without Kante. Massively in a 4 2 3 one. So I and as much as Billy's emergence has been great and fantastic, and yeah, I want him to play. Let's be serious. Even in performances, like I remember in in Everton game, yeah, we were for me were great. But sometimes in transition, I'm still thinking, oh shit, we're still in like I'm so. As much as we say, and I know that in certain moments, Kante snuffing that out, like problems like that, Kante snuffing those problems out. So it's like. Whilst we don't like, I think we're too used to getting sucked in, and I guess in the results. And again, we always do this on this pod anyway. We try to go back and rewatch the matches, and yeah, yeah. It, it opens up your your mind and eye, well, your eyes a bit in in a new light. So the game we played well offensively, defensively at some points in transition we looked kind of shaky, as per in a four two three one. 
So it's just like, I don't know. I feel like I want to see Kante in a sustain, like for a sustained period of time playing under Frank Lampard fit. Fit and, fit and well, yeah. That's yeah, when yeah, you yeah. can make a decision. Until then, I think it's too premature because there's, yeah. too, there's so much. There's so I'd much. be surprised if they did. I, I'd be surprised if they did sell him. Like I've but, already said that. I'm but yeah, just what, get rid of him. One thing for certain, I am not selling Kante to get Havertz. It's just not. Because one, we don't need to. Two, it's your best play. It's your best player. I just don't get that. <laughs> Anyone wanted to sell their best player, I think that's kind of mad. I, think, I genuinely think he's 28. You're going into your peak years, bro. Like, he's got at least two, two three years of peak. Like, uh, for me, I don't know. That's, that's mad. For me, it's mad. And it's, be, yeah, I don't know. To question, Tiyas's question, I don't, think, I don't think there is a person defensively as capable as, as Kante, to be honest. But, um, Again, it's just all to do with the way that Lampard's trying to play football in this four-two-three-one. Because, I, like, obviously we need we need players to defend, but I look at a lot of the time when he's when he's when he's looked at the players playing there as well. Like, I don't know. I can. I don't think Lampard will want to sell him. I think I think that will end up coming more from the club. If I'm being honest, I think if the club see an opportunity to to make triple, you know, what they what they got what they what they paid for, it's like. If they sell him for if they manage to sell him for like seventy or eighty, they might feel like, oh, we've got players to to play there, and 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 that will fund us. Like, when did he get his new deal? He got his new deal at the end of um, Sari season, didn't it? A couple of years in the ago, middle. Yeah, I think it was in the middle of Sari's first. Yeah, in the middle of Sari's season. Um, yeah. Because we were worried about him and Hazard both getting at the same time. Same so time, yeah. he just got his his new contract what a year ago, about that, about a year and a half ago. Yeah, made him his our highest paid player. I don't see the club then turn around after one um, injury hit campaign and say, you know what, Kante, yeah, you got to go, brother. I don't see it. I don't see Frank Lampard wanting to sell him either. Because one thing that I, you could, it's evident for me anyway, as great as Billy is, as fantastic as Ruben is, as talented as Kovacic is, and as obviously as, as a great passer as Jorginho is, Barkley, Mount, etc. no one could do what he can do. No one in world football could do what he can do. Like, when you've got a special, unique array of talents, you don't want to sell it. And also, you need to mention as well, in a 4-2-3-1, because we suffered so much in terms of creativity, and you're asking for so much in terms of Kovacic, Jorginho, Billy when he plays there as well, Mount if you drop deeper, the issue is when it comes to being creative, Kante had to be that third-man runner, he had to be so he had to be up the pitch a lot in terms of the, on the offensive side of the game because obviously Kovacic and Jorginho ain't affecting that part of the game. Now, where you get a Ziechin or even if we get a Havertz, that responsibility is gone. So immediately you're already stable because Kante isn't up the pitch. He ain't wandering up the pitch. You get what I'm trying to say? That uh, yeah, well, centre defensive midfielder again offers stability because again you've got your front four. Causing chaos. So it's just, I feel like we need to think about the, the midfield composition rather than the individual personnel. I think it, it's important. And I feel like Kante would be in our best midfield, period. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Joe, as our relevant, uh, sorry, as our resident book balancer, <laughs> do you think there is any likelihood that if a big offer was to come in, the club, not necessarily the the management or the coaching staff, because I think every coach would uh, would die to have a player like Kante in this side. Do you think a big offer could tempt the club just thinking of 
the wages on, the squad going a bit younger. Um, what, what would it take? Or would you think, nah, they're, they're in it for the long haul, five-year deal, that's there to be played out? The, I think the only way that Kante leaves the club is, I think, both Jermaine and if ever alluded to, if there is some sort of in-house knowledge, particularly about his situation, if it's degenerative or there's some sort of condition that he has, that is the only way that I can see the club um, certainly selling him for, you know, this season. Um, you know, if we go into next year and the injuries continue, et cetera, then potentially that, that opinion is, is sort of re-evaluated. But I think at the moment, you know, unless you are certain that, you know, what he has in terms of the, the sort of injuries and the knocks it's picked up, if that, if that is something that you're predicting is a pattern, um, I think Bill Belichick kind of said it, you know, best in sort of the NFL, you know, you, you'd rather get rid of someone a season too early than a season too late. So if the club know that, um, purely from a business perspective, obviously his, his value is going to be a lot higher now than it would be after another injury hit season. But it, that, that, that's for me what it comes down to. It will come down to for, uh, almost like a sports science opinion on, on what they think in terms of his, uh, his capacity to, to play and recover. If he's going to be a guy who plays, you know, one in three, one in four, whatever, then I, I could see them moving him on. But if he's going to recover fully and, and be a, a significant part of the sport, then I think, yeah, you keep him for as, as long as you can before you sell him on. If he's find, right, he's, uh, he's a rare player. That Belichick uh, quote, who's someone who got that really, really right. And then I always think back to Wenger as someone who got it really, really wrong and always got rid of someone just maybe two years too early and just yeah. missed it slightly. But I've, I'm, I'm almost of the opinion, obviously it's not my money, um, <laughs> I'm almost, I'm almost of the opinion that even if Kante is injury prone for the next sort of three years of his career, you keep him and manage him like a Ledley King or whatever, just because of how important he is in the big games and the biggest games and the Champions League ties away from home. And, and he's not the type of personality it doesn't seem like who would need to be the main man. I don't know. That's where I probably lean, even if he is injured. Um, more so than he has been. Confirmed. Because, like, look, fam, N'Golo Kante versus Barcelona, bro. I just need to just reference that one performance, fam. N'Golo Kante, even on one leg against Liverpool this season. Come on, come on, man. I don't know. I don't know. Bro, at home, Liverpool at home, Liverpool um, in the Super Cup. Come on, man. The biggest game so you better hope he plays 4 3 3 because he ain't going to be playing like that in the 4 3 Regardless, run. man. Regardless. Kante's levels. Regardless. I feel like... I'm just saying, though, I ain't seen... You know, the thing is... You see, the thing is, yeah, we say, oh, but, you know, we can't judge his performances this year because of his injuries. But then we say, but he played so well against Liverpool in a 4 3 3 Played so well against Liverpool at home in a 4 3 3 But I ain't seen that same level of performance in a 4 2 3 one Do you not think... Do you not think that that's as a result of not necessarily him, but I think our performances, especially in terms of defence and our compactness, generally I feel like when we play a 4-2-3-1, our issues stem from creativity and not actually being able to create shit, rather than us being super defensively weak. Because I feel like you're getting a lot of the similar issues in the 4-2-3-1 and the 4-3-3. Generally, it's just that one attacking midfielder that's not bringing any defensive support in the midfield. So, I don't know. I don't know. I feel like maybe we're overstating that too much because all those issues. But a million percent, in terms of creativity, that is a big issue with us when, it's a, when we play 4 2 3 one. 
And that's why you're getting in the ZHs. That's why you're getting in the Havertz because that formation isn't bad if you've got the right players. You know what I mean? We've obviously, we, we said from day dot, Mason Mount is not a number 10. If he plays number 10, we will suffer in terms of creativity and in that area. We just knew. Lo and behold, it happened, you know? So now we're getting in, if we are trying to get in a Havertz, it makes more sense because that is a number 10. That is a traditional... That's not even a traditional number 10, but that is a player that has got the skill sets to be excellent at number 10, whereas Mason Mount, for me, yeah. doesn't have that necessary skill set. So it's different. You know? You've got Hakim Ziyech, who, for me, can play number 10 excellently. Total Wine & More is a wonderland to explore. Thousands of wines and spirits, unexpected pairings and great gifts, low prices and helpful guides. Make the holidays magical at Total Wine & More. Drink responsibly, be 21. So that's yeah, what hope, it, hope it, improves. Yeah, it changes yeah. the game entirely. It changes the game yeah, entirely. Moving, moving on to Havertz, Meads, because um, this is another one where I always find it funny that every summer there seems to be some journalist who, no discredit to them, they, they've all been working there and their craft for a long time, but emerges into the Chelsea fan consciousness and just becomes the most <laughs> searched and clicked name yeah. ever. When Sari was joining, it was, what's his name, Alfredo Padula. Yeah. Um, there's, there's always one, right? And then Christian Falk, um, I believe works with Build in Germany, is just now the go-to go guy for any Chelsea fan. They're, they're clicking at CF Bayern every flipping day to see Werner stuff, to see Havertz stuff. Um, latest word from him is that very vaguely said talks have um, happened between Chelsea and Havertz, although maybe it's buyer, maybe it's a representative. Um, again, very cryptically, Havertz can imagine to play for Chelsea, which could be as amazing as, yeah, that would be quality, following Balak's footsteps, love a bit of Lampard, or it could be, yeah, I like blue, that's, that's what that'll do. That's a nice colour. Um, a nice colour. And then, um, and then he does every time, though a lot of a lot of clubs do get uh, fans are getting excited. But he does every time that we get mentioned. He mentions a host of other clubs, and he does seem to say what we've said for a lot of this is that probably our best opportunity of snagging a player that we probably wouldn't get on on in a usual summer is the fact that we could potentially move quickly while a lot of people are sort of yeah, looking at themselves financially. How do you rank our chances in that race? Um, so, first of all, in terms of like the bio link and um, what well, I don't even know his name, Chris, I think, whatever. Um, so in terms of him, the the thing is when we have like like you said the um the links, everyone t it tends to be new, but that's because it just tends to adopt and adapt based on the the home country that person's coming from. So, Sari was Italian. And a lot of his players that were linked, you know, were Italian. Um, beforehand, it was Conte. A lot of the players that were linked with were Italian. And now, obviously, Havertz is German. Um, German um, and Werner is also German. So you're going to get that connection. You're, you're going you're gonna to have more connections and more links and more sources to um, a country that you're working in. That's just very, pretty much natural. Um, that's why a lot of people are talking about um, Chihuahua. Because you've got the English connection, a lot of English media are talking about who okay, this is for certain Frank's number one target at left back. So I think that's a natural thing. Now, the Werner, the even the Werner transfer and that, the Havertz one, they come out of the blue really. Because I feel like 
yes, we may have been interested, but it's the level of conviction that these journalists are writing at that makes me feel quite confident that, well, not even confident, but it makes me feel quite pleasantly surprised that we're actually making active moves to get these players. So whilst I'm, I can't say for certain in terms of, or say with, like give you a proper percentage of how confident I am, what I am happy about and what I'm certain about is that the club are actually trying to get these players in. That's the most important thing. Having the ambition to try and get these players in. Because if you, if you try and you don't get them, that's not a problem. That's not a problem. It's better than not trying and then you're going for the crappy targets straight off the bat that we're doing on the, on the Conte. It just didn't make any sense to me. So the direction is what I find positive, if you know what I mean. And it's, it looks like it's coming from the top down and, again, the down up as well. It just seems like we're all in unison for the first time in a long time. Um, but Havertz, I don't know. If, if you're looking at where where he'd be, be better suited, where he'd play the most, where he's guaranteed to start, um, obviously Bayer, you know, Leverkusen will probably be the best bet for him to stay and play. But at the same time, is it really going to be, given the economic climate, would it be wise for them to leave him? As in, I think he's only got two or three years left on his deal. Would it be wise? No, I think he's got two years left on his deal. But would it be wise not to sell him? You know. Um, but I'd probably say Chelsea will probably be be the best place for him to go because I think I think he'll play a lot more. Um, I think he'll be relied upon, um, and also he wouldn't be like you wouldn't be dependent like the load on him to perform, as in the demand on him to perform and be a success, especially at a club where you've got three new players. So, so it'll be Ziyech, Havertz, and Werner. The demands to perform the load that you're going to carry is going to be shared. You know what I mean? So you're going to have less... I guess the eyes will be on you far less because you're going to be part of many rather than one. So, yeah, I do feel like... I feel like Chelsea would be slight favourites out of the rest. And that's weird because we're never in that position. It's very difficult. Whenever we're going up against the big boys, we're never usually in a strong position. So... It's weird, but it's great. Obviously, we've got um, Roman Abramovich, who is a super owner. So hopefully we get it over the line, man, hopefully, because that would definitely change us. That would definitely change us. And as much as, I, you know, we love Ruben, we're fans of Mason Mount, obviously happy with ZH and Werner, but I feel like Havertz's tactical flexibility will change an awful lot. It will give us so much options. And, yeah, again, attack and prowess. It enhances as soon as he comes here. So, yeah, hopefully we get it done. Then. Hopefully, I, I think I agree with me in that. Surely it's just more than anything refreshing to actually be in a race for players like this. No, I feel like we've been so far off for the last few years. Um, yeah. I don't know if it's the Lampard pull power. I don't know what it is. I swear, journalists are they're they're giving a lot of credit to Lampard, which I find I wouldn't say odd, but it's like Dan said um, a while ago, like a lot of these younger players, and we're completely forgetting how young these players are. Like A lot of these younger players idolise people like Frank Lampard because they grew up watching him. And well, what, we, said, we, said it, we said it for like the 25s, yeah, yeah. and the 26. But then even like uh, Havertz, so what, he would have been, what, 
10 when mm. Lampard... I suppose, yeah, even then, I think yeah, we've still got a few years to go on that, isn't it? Well, Chelsea were still mad successful during these men growing up. So, yeah. and they're going to be watching them. And obviously, as the, you know, the early 2000s babies are, they were watching football. They had access to English football on a regular basis. And obviously, the Prem, as a brand, biggest brand in football. So, they're watching them. So, you're going to get a... a, a a feel and a, an adoration towards certain players. Like it's, it's very natural. Like a lot, like the late, okay, for example, like the, the late 20s, they're looking at Zidane thinking, yes, that, that's Zidane, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that people are looking at Frank and thinking, oh my God, that's Frank Lampard, but there's a pool, there's a le- certain level of respect. And that's what it seems to be the case because a lot of journalists are writing about it, saying that Frank, his personal touches changed the, the, the it changes the deal. Like, Werner was, his heart was set on Liverpool. Lampard spoke to him. Lampard was on it. I mean, Werner was on it straight. I was like, Lampard must be saying something right. It may not even be just Frank. It just may be, it, okay, it may not be Frank the player. It may just be the way he speaks to these players and makes them feel important. So, we don't know. We don't, we don't know. It's, it's interesting, though. A lot of credit is getting um, attributed to, to Frank in regards to these players. But I say, if you're a, if you're an attacking midfielder who scores goals, I mean, who who do you want to play for? I mean, he's the greatest mm-hmm. goal scoring midfielder ever mm-hmm. in the history of football. So, I think you know, even like for us growing up, I didn't see Luis Figo play regularly, but in my head, he's still like a player. Like some of these like early, like late nineties, early sort of two thousands, eighty Milan players. Seidel, I didn't see a great deal. Every Costa, all these people that you can you can reel off. Mm-hmm. I think for a lot of younger players, Lampard's in that kind of bracket of players. You know, he's. Mm-hmm constantly being a guy who's performing in Europe and I think just just the number of goals that he scores it's just one of those things that I think overseas people be like oh, he's playing centre mid and he's got like 18 league goals you know I think it's it's something that uh, I think it will jump out and again if, if you're Havertz a natural game you know you want to become a, an attacking midfielder you want to be a goal scorer why not learn from from the best to do it and I, th- I think Frank as well when you hear him talk I think he's he's got that sort of convincing energy I think what if he was saying that I think he's got that ability to to kind of make them feel important and make them feel feel kind of valued in what he's trying to do. He's obviously got a young team. He's trying to build a young attacking squad. I think that kind of fits into it as well. You know, you can come in as a young player and be a leader That's and be a central true. figure as well. So, yeah, I think it's, uh, it's, it's going to be interesting. I mean, personally, I think it's really between us and Bayern. Um, I'm not, not hugely convinced on the Madrid links. You know, United have, have some similar players. You know, they've just spent a load of money on Bruno Fernandes. Mm. You're gonna go and get a similar player in in oh, Habit, So the United thing came out today, but I can't see how you literally just invested ah. in Fernandez. He's now the centerpiece of your team. Yeah. I can't see that. I just can't. Yeah, exactly. So I, I think I think we're in a good position. It's just gonna be a question of of how quickly we're moving. I think that that seems to be the key here. Is the club have just gone? Let's be aggressive. You know, yeah, the Werner thing, they've snuck yeah. up and they've, they've, they've gotten ahead and it could be the same for Habits. So we move, we're moving quite quietly as well, which is, I quite like that. Um, Bayern, uh, Joe, is something you alluded to privately and that Bayern are very particular about and um, they're very frugal and they don't like splashing too much, but on the flip side, they don't like. Um, they're, they're very big on, it's almost like Ferguson's United, they want the best German talents playing yeah. for the best German club. Um, one thing that is a bit of an alarm bell in terms of that link is there's a story come out today that they Dane is so set on joining them and has been for a year and a half. They basically told City that they'll come and get him on a free at the, in January quite happily. Um, yeah. you, and so, so that's an interesting one. You see with that though, yeah? I feel 
I feel like the issue with those kind of situ- like those kind of situations are interesting because that will kind of it will kind of say a lot about the player's mentality, in my opinion. So if you're desperate, if you're desperate to go to Bayern Munich, then yeah, you'd wait. Uh, you'd wait. You'd wait a year. You'd wait a year for them to come get you because. Like you said, Bayern Munich aren't going to spend the 70, 80 million pounds. I don't think they've ever spent that much money. Even how much did they pay for Lewandowski? That's well. About 30 mil? Like, I don't the, the record transfer was like 40 mil. Lewandowski was on a free, I'm pretty sure. I think it was a free. Or was it? I think it was said that cost 30 mil. It was just one of them. Yeah, I think they wanted to. Um, Lewandowski, I think he waited out his contract. Yeah. So basically, a lot of these players, when it comes to going to Bayern Munich, they kind of finesse their their clubs to go, um, just by not signing a new deal. And um, for me, apparently they've said that Habits wants to go to England. He has an interest in going to England in playing in the Prem. So maybe the idea of him staying in Germany, it may not be a thing for him. As in personally, he may just not want to do it. He may not just want to go to Bayern Munich. So it all depends. He looks like he's strolling the league as well. That's the thing. Like when when I was watching some of the clips as well, he looks like he's strolling through the league. Bro. I think like, that's just, again that's just his play style, man. I feel like when he comes to England, if he doesn't pop off, that'll be the first thing that people get. Off. Thing, no, 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 not like that. I don't mean as a criticism. I mean like no, no, as in. No, I'm not saying. I'm not, no, that's what I'm saying. I don't think it's a criticism at all. I think that's just oh, the yeah. plays. But yeah, he doesn't work hard stop, enough. He doesn't run enough. Right. All that so stuff. If, yeah, yeah. If, if certain things don't start going right for him. The first thing they'll talk about is his body language. The first thing they'll say, <laughs> yeah, yeah. oh, he doesn't run hard enough. He doesn't care enough. Look at the way he's like, strolling around. He don't care. So I feel like that that's the kind of perception. That's why people used to say he kind of reminds him of a young Urza. Because just to play, the way he plays, the way he moves, the way he's graceful. But the, yeah, idea, yeah. the idea of him not working hard because he's not looks like he's running hard, that, that will follow him if it doesn't pop off for him. It's interesting though, man. Like when you when speaking you're of, speaking Frank, of what, like, what your point about maybe wanting to leave Germany, I can't remember the exact stat. I should have really noted it, but I think he's the youngest player to hit 35 goals in the Bundesliga. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, the Bundesliga is getting younger and younger, so those records constantly shift <laughs> years. But it, it's still interesting, and he might just feel like it's like that chat we had the other day. Is like on the one hand, he might feel like he wants a new challenge. On the other hand, he might uh, let me give it a year. You just the age, you just don't really know. Um, just to finish off the Havertz chat, um, average squad, do you reckon out of 10 is the likelihood that we pull off this sign? It's weird because it's quite high, man. I want to say a 7 out of 10. Yeah, that's I was going with 7. High, and that's high. Yeah, going to come with an 11 in a second, <laughs> That's Bro, that's high for a top player. Who's going to come with an 11? You. Big man, do you not know who's been the most hyped about this transfer? Still using a manual razor? Join the facial hair revolution with the Philips Norelco One Blade. This innovative tool lets you trim, edge, and shave your beard or stubble with ease. One Blade, your style, made simple. Available in Walmart. Are you not on the pod today? Yeah, to be fair, it's not on the pod. It's not me. It's Mr. Soft still. It's Mr. Soft. I can hear him smiling from here still. He's not even on Zoom, but I can hear him smiling, bro. Like, radiating I, I, I think it's I think it's around the six still I'll I, I'll be surprised I don't know I feel like if he's interested if he's proper interested then I think Chelsea will tie up the deal I can't lie mm. but but it's, it's again it's all to do like I, I just can't see Bayern Munich 
pushing as hard as us. I don't, I don't, I, I can't see it. Seventy-five mm, million pounds as well. Seventy-five mil. That's what I didn't realize they they actually dropped eighty million euros on Hernandez, the centre back or left back, in the beginning. Like completely, completely forgot about that. So I'm not sure if they have the to do like two two of those signings back to back because their biggest sign before that was Tolisso from Leon for like forty mil. Well, no one will be surprised to hear that I think he's about a four. Um, <laughs> of course. On, I thought he was like a one. <laughs> moving on to um, average scores. Joe, you're going to take the lead on this one, mate, because as our, as our, I need to come up with a name for this, by the way. But yeah, resident ba- book balancer. Um, <laughs> I, I mentioned it at the end of the pod last week. What we're going to start introducing as a feature here at Chessier, moving through towards the end of this season um, and hopefully next season and beyond is the official Chelsea Hour Power Rankings. So every single, um, we haven't decided for sure, every three to four weeks, maybe three to four match days, um, we're going to aggregate scores um, as a lot of power, power ranking systems work based on a number of metrics, player for player. We're going to try and counterbalance them as best we can by position so that we keep an objective tab um, to generate discussion amongst you guys at home as well in terms of who is having the best month, who is rising the most places, who is dropping off, who's starkly dropping off, um, and who's just rivaling each other at, at the top of, of our, um, I guess, player of the year table for months and months and months on end. Um, we're hoping it will be a really good bit of fun for you lot as well to, to take pops and to, to have a debate about, but I think it will maybe show up some, some interesting things about who's contributing the most in, in the games as well. Um, so rather than go trawl through the season just gone um, specifically, we're kind of aware that this, this restart is going to be a bit of a clean slate and I think a lot of clubs are going to come into it quite fresh. So as our baseline, what we did, every Chelsea Hour member put in their score um, in terms of averages for how to rate our players within the squad. And what we've come out with is a rough, a rough 24-man list. Now, we're going to probably disagree on some of these places and you're just going to have to put up with it while we sort out this, this finalised standing. Um, but the ranking, Joe, was from seven excellent world-class down to a zero, which is why have you even got a contract, I believe. <laughs> um, and there was only one of them. Meads can explain that later. But, um, the smile. <laughs> over, over to you, Mr. Tweeds. And, and you can get us our average scores and, and bring us up from 24 to 1. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, yeah, for everyone at home. So we have, yeah, as you said, from zero to seven. And the reason we have that is that there's no, there's no middle score. So there's no five out of tens here for people to sit on the fence. Three is bad, four is good, four and above obviously increases in, in how good you think they are, three and below down to zero, which is, as you said, pretty much like, you know, this person shouldn't have a contract here. So starting with the bottom, let's do the bottom five people. Um, so with an average, so bear in mind, this is out of seven. Uh, we have Marcus Alonso at the bottom. That's unsurprising. Uh, Jermaine with the overall lowest score given to him. Uh, we have Mr. Kepa Arisa Balaga. If uh, if a coming in with the only zero score of the no, entire uh... Kepa did well there to get a zero and still not finish twenty four. I know. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I think Alonso got hammered. Uh, yeah, listen, yeah, by by you, Palumi, and uh, Jermaine gave him a one as well. I mean, even after, no that, even after that vote of confidence, man. Yeah. <laughs> Look at that, shocking guy. Then we had uh, Willy Caballero, just above them, which I suppose a backup keeper is not the worst thing in the world. Um, 
This one might change now, given his recruitment stuff, but Antonio Rudiger come fourth from bottom. Put him 12. So Put he's him. he's now like, he might be top three now after <laughs> German recruitment half. drop. Well, no, but this was on pitch matters, wasn't it? If we're gonna on pitch, about, yeah. If we're going to talk about off-pitch contributions, then it's another... I don't know, my eyes are certainly starting to shine now. I don't know. That's what I And then we've got rounding out in the bottom five is William. So William, Rudiger, Caballero, Arisa Balaga and Marcus Alonso. Those are, are technically the bottom five players that we come up with oh, on mate, average score. That's harsh, bro. <laughs> yeah. if, we're go- if we're going off this season, William being that low is harsh. Yeah. Yeah. This was a little bit like your, your perception of the player. Not so much like this season, but like okay. where do you kind of rank them in the squad? I guess even then, it's so harsh, bro. Yeah. Look looking looking back at it, I'm a little bit like, ah, okay, I've been a bit tough on some I think we put a pin in William there, to be fair. I think we put a pin in him there. Where was, where did he finish off? He's fifth from bottom. Yeah, because look, you no, do you know what? Do you know what? Nah, because look, when we, when we gave William his flowers, and not even just flowers, we, we adequately rated him about his, his, his time at Chelsea. I think we gave him a six and a half, seven. If that, what was it? You and Joe gave him I mean, maybe six and a half, seven, right? Now, so he's, uh, who have we got here? So we got Dan and Jermaine gave him a four. So four is good. So they've rated him on the positive side. Everyone else gave him threes, which is bad, not good. Oh. So because there's no middle ground here, I think that, that that maybe has thrown it a little bit, but. Yeah, I feel like it's quite hard. Well, put a pin in William. We're going to come back to William. Put yeah. a pin in William. It's really good stuff. That's so harsh. So, so uh, let's have a look here. The next five. It also looks a little bit tough now, now that I'm looking at it. So, uh, bottom of the next group is Azpilicueta. Then we've got Mishi, uh, Emerson, the American, as he's officially known as, and then uh, Tomori. Yeah. What do we think on that? So, this is sort of like a 19 to 40 ish. I'm there thinking, oh yeah, you know, maybe Emerson or whatever Tamori, but I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I'm really arguing to put them higher. Fair. I don't, yeah. Fair, 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 fair. And the the average rating here for Aspilicueta is three and a half, so he's between bad and good. Bachelor is the same. Emerson three point seven, Pulisic three point eight, and Tamori coming at a four. So Tamori, we think is good. He's okay. like the Tamori is the beginning of the good players. Yeah. I can handle that. See, I can handle that. I can't remember. I know that he has he has some pretty good stats for wins, but yeah, Jermaine, you're meant to only ask us stats that we have to hand, mate. Like, yeah. like <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. Don't trip me up with sorry, something like that. Yeah, no, forget that. But I, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, Tomori above Pulisic. I don't know about that. Yeah. About that. It's a bit. Yeah. Okay. Next group, so we've got Pedro. So this is kind of like the upper tier. So we've got Pedro, uh, Barkley. I think Barkley's sort of uh, recent form has probably come in there. And Dan giving uh, him a six or a seven. That is um, absolutely <laughs> What? Dan, Dan gave him a five. Palumi gave him a three. Christensen. <laughs> uh, and then we've got um, Giroud and Zuma. Christensen above Tamori. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I'd say so, man. As much as I like Tamori, he's Jermaine's got a couple games when he come back in it. Played 15 games in the league, um, 22 I think in total. Christensen for his for his issues, he's he's still got a lot of him. And even this season, like after all the debates uh, in January, he came back and he performed pretty well. True, to be fair, true. 
Zuma's, Zuma's our top ranked centre back. Oh, Which cool. I'll, I'll back that straight oh, up. Oh, yeah. I'll back that. Yeah. Next here, I'll do four so then we can do a top five. So the next four, this is the uh, from what's this, nine till five, basically, or ten till, ten till five. Uh, we've got Mason Mount, Tammy, Billy Gilmore coming in strong with the four and a half is, is interesting. And, uh, and Callum. So a lot of the academy players from, uh, from 10 till 9, 8, 7, 6, yeah. So about, let, me just, uh, let me just get this straight. Jermaine, right? <laughs> Jermaine had a go at Tamori for not playing enough games. No, 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 but I didn't ask if he played any, that, um, that many games for that reason. I asked because I was trying to think of how many like, good games he'd had Tomori. So I was just trying to think, like, oh, has he even okay. played well, well, Gilmore's had two. <laughs> two perfect games, isn't he? We've, we've got that stat to hand. What can you do? What do you want me to do, mate? I mean, this is the thing with power rankings is when they do get a bit subjective, like Gilmore has put himself in a position where he could well be seen as the main guy now. But I'm not going to lie. The only... OK, that one is a bit mad to me. Um, but the only one that I feel like so far, we we might have been a bit harsh on William, man. Yeah, I think so. I think so. To see where he of, OK, so in terms of performance this season, William's definitely been our best winner. I feel yeah, like yeah. Com- comfortably as well. He's been our best winger. As much as he's frustrated me, he's been our best winger. Night and day. I don't think there's been a single winger that's come close to him in terms of performances. Nah, nah, nah. nah. They've all been shit though, innit? Huh? Yeah, they've, they've, all, all, been they've all been crap, but I'm taking Williams' performances this season over pretty much every single one of them. You've got Callum at a full 1.2 points ahead of Williams, so that's almost a, just over a full grade ahead of him as well. Yeah, which is interesting. And I think. That's and then I said we have rated this a little bit on what we think about their ability as well as what they've done this season. So, as as the starting point, yeah, that makes sense. Then. But then again, even statistically though, um, time on the pitch, um, application, apparently statistically, Callum's our most dangerous. Yeah, winger. he is. Yeah, he's our most dangerous winger. So, even given all the injuries, given everything that's happened, it's not a complete bias thing. How many goals has Willian got? Five in the league. One in the Champions League. Now is the chance to use reliable energy to grow your money with the Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. Our new investment product offers competitive returns, no maintenance fees, and flexible online access to your money. Make the reliable investment in reliable energy. The Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. To find out more, go online to reliabilityinvestment.com. That's reliabilityinvestment.com. One in the FA Cup. Guys, an absolute joke. For, <laughs> for William, five in the league is... is that's decent, yeah. That's decent for William. What are you talking about? That's William. Yeah, that's, it's still get his one in eight. It's a joke. He's played like every minute. Like, oh, man. Well, what are you expecting? That's William. Listen, I don't have my expectations of brothers anymore. I know what they're about. I think, I think, Joe, I think the top five is where we're going to find our most consensus. So put us out of our misery for that one, please. So, top five, uh, Jorginho, Mish James, oh. Kovacic, Ruben, Kante. Yeah. And interesting, I think uh, Kante is, has at least everyone's highest score individually as well. So Kante got a 6.3, so excellent to outstanding world class. 
Ruben 5.7, Kova 5.5, Reese 5.5, and Georgina got a four and a half. Right, let me 100%, ask. Listen, 100% is going to be people listening to this pod thinking, what the hell is Ruben Loftus Cheek yeah. doing? Second? Let me ask you. I don't care. Hopefully, they see it over the next, what, yeah. nine games? Yeah. Many Jay, let me ask you a question, Jay. All right. Would you sell Ruben Loftus Cheek? Huh? <laughs> there you go. There you go. There you go. There you go. You see, there you go. You want to sell our best player, but you're not going to sell our second best player. No, 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 but, but, no, but, but. Go let on. me down. Let me down. Let me down. Ruben worth 80 to 90 million right now, bro. Okay. Man, not, 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 not much P right now. If someone offered you 60 mil for Ruben right now, would you take it? No, I still wouldn't do it. I still there you go. There you go. That's my case. But, but again, Jermaine, Jermaine wouldn't sell it for one sixty. But again, wait, wait, wait. Again, he's not twenty nine. He's not twenty nine. So, Allow me. but he's, in, he's okay. But he's injury pro. I don't think he's played a full season of men's football though, Jermaine. But listen, I digress. Nah, he, hasn't. he hasn't. But but to be fair, I did say I would only sell Kante if his injuries carried on like the way they did. To be I hear that. I hear that. Right. Listen, I think if his injuries carried on like this. Is there anyone who has major objections to that apart from William? Um, William, I feel... I think Aspie's quite low. Aspie's quite low. Um, I don't yeah. know if Aspie is that. To be serious, William. To be exact, Aspie, you know, Aspie. Aspie was dog. Nah. Aspie's no, made no, me no. sick for about a year and a half. No, no, no. <laughs> don't nah. forget them. I'm forgetting, bro. Them early days when we didn't have Reese. Oh, my God. No, no, no. You see, Reese coming back has saved Aspie's arsenal because I remember early doors, we were thinking, what the fuck? The United performance, we were disgusting. Yeah, Game up, every single time, him and Alonso tried to cross the ball, hitting first man every time. Nah, nah. United. My bad. He's two points clear of Azpilicueta in my the bad. rankings. My bad, my bad, my bad, my bad. Nah, man. Azpilicueta you know and, and, and it correlates because Reese James is so high because the starkers in terms of difference, like when he came back from injury and played, levels, you're thinking, rah. What? Is he really as well in terms of performances and ability as well. Yeah. 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 And ability, right? yeah. Joe, is, is, is William lower than Pulisic? He is, yeah. That's nah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Gary. You guys are good guys. Scary, fam. You know deep down. You know deep down. It's It's all right. Julian is shocking. He's got to go up. He's got to go up. That's the only change I'm making, but he's got to go up. Yes, I don't know. I, I don't know where to put him. I think he's a four. I think he's good. He's on the side of good, William. Just put him above Pulisic. No problem. This guy's nasty. You're where does he nasty. come if he goes above Pulisic? So he's just below Tamori then. So he's either a 3.9 or a four. Oh, oh, sorry, probably, guys. He's probably got to go over Tamori as well, though, mate. Put him where Jorginho is. You know Don't what? ever put him where Jorginho is. Jorginho, <laughs> number five, stays in the top five. You know what it was? I, I can't help but do it to myself. Now, Jay, Jay's disgust prompted me, of course, to, you know, have a look at William's stats again. Depressing. It's just depressing. I don't know why I do it to myself. I love Meaty's little know, face right there. It's amazing. Just fucking hell, man. He's only scored 33 Premier League goals, man. I don't <laughs> Ever. Yeah, ever. Ever. Well, that's what I said. Five is good. He's had a good year. Oh, bro. Oh, this is this relatively is, speaking, this, he's had a good year. This is his third best season, like his joint third best season ever. And he's only played twice. With five. 
What's his best? Eight, right? His highest is eight. Fucking hell, man. Wasn't that the season where he hit like four fluke free kicks, though, from yeah. no, out no, wide? No, 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 no. Listen, listen. He's tied that season. In the 15 16 season, he only scored five Premier League goals. Five. He's That's his player of the year season, yeah? Yes, and he's matched that in 20 years. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. See? Well Jermaine's unhappy. Well well now, done. let me give you context, Last yeah? We were up that bad that season that fans voted a man that scored five goals in 35 Premier League games where he started every one of them. Five. Yeah, but how many goals, how many of those five goals were free kicks? Scary. Bro, that's what, that's what teams do. Scary. How many of those five goals were free kicks? Scary. shocking. Scary. He's shocking. He is shocking. All right, listen. I'm going to spin the block. That, maybe, maybe he stays. I don't know. Maybe he's... I'm going to spin the block. He's, he's got promoted and demoted in like 30 seconds. I don't know, I don't know if we're going to be he's moving him anyway because if he even plays coming up now, I don't even know. But he, we'll stays have he stays there. I, I span the block. Nuh-uh. He stays there. Yeah, well done. I'm glad. I'm glad. All right. Can. So for those listening at home, that is something that's going to be... Uh, we've got one more pod until Premier League, our, our first Premier League game comes back. So that's when we will start accruing this data. It'll be put on the, on the Twitter um, tomorrow after uh, Friday afternoon by the time this is listened to by most people so by all means listen argue debate question um, and we'll tell you why that we're correct um, <laughs> and yeah and yeah uh, moving moving on just to the last feature of this pod um, I caught up earlier with um, a good friend of mine who um, I felt was was very suitable to to talk on an issue which is, is come up in the media again uh, today. Um, last year, the Guardian released an expose on uh, issues of bullying and racism within um, Chelsea's youth teams, um, as as dished out basically by by a coach named Gwyn, Gwyn Williams. Now it's it's an ongoing sort of issue, I believe. Um, today, a big article in the Athletic dropped. Um, investigating sort of Chelsea's legal response to to these issues. Now, um, for those that don't have the athletic, uh, essentially the the crux of it is that um, four youth team player, former youth team players in the 80s, in the 90s, have uh, sued the club for damages owing to their psychological issues that have stemmed from that abuse. Um, depression, relationship issues, and long-lasting effects, and there's a suspicion that ten more former youth players may be doing the same. Now, where a lot of the controversy has stemmed from is that, whereas in other instances the club have owned responsibility and um, offered payouts and and after due care for victims of child sexual abuse, mm-hmm. essentially they've said it's Gwyn Williams's problem and not Chelsea FC's problem in this case. Um, Gwyn Williams, I believe, is still living and is the one being um, targeted with these claims and no one else at the club. He worked at the club until 2006, initially joining in 1979. So he clearly had a very long-lasting working relationship with the club. So a good friend of mine, Pablo Blackwood, joined us today um, just to have a little chat about his experiences in these Chelsea youth teams under Gwyn Williams. Um, And yeah, he had a lot of interesting stuff to say and and you can listen to that now. for those listening, a big reason that Pabs has come onto the pod this week is um, to talk about his his experiences at the football club, at Chelsea Football Club, um, in light of in light of some of the the serious and and 
quite unsightly news that is, is out today and has been out um, in the public eye for the last couple of years. Um, so just a quick one. This is going to be a topic which is, is quite um, difficult to listen to for some, I imagine. Um, Pabs, of course, yourself, it might be quite difficult to talk about certain things. So if there's anything you're not really feeling to answer, that's cool, man. Um, it just thought it'd be really, really good to put some stuff out there so people are aware of, of kind of the personal experiences of everyone involved. Um, and that is referring to some of the stuff that's made headlines again today um, regarding bullying and racism of youth players at Chelsea in the 80s and the 90s um, by coaches, including the names sort of Gwyn Williams and others. Um, so, yeah, there's just a little bit of a disclaimer about this chat. Um, and then over to you, Pabs. I'll come at you with a few questions and stuff. Um, but yeah, man, just, just talk freely. So I think it would be really good for everybody listening if, if you just give yourself um, a little bit about yourself, a little biography and just your involvement kind of with the club, where it started, go back as far as birth, knowing how local you are, but um, where it started and kind of what years you were, you were really around the club. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, to put it into context, whilst I don't like thinking about it because it's about my mum and my dad, but to put it into context, I was made in Chelsea. So, um, <laughs> born and raised in Chelsea, um, I went to Servite Primary School, which anyone who knows the club knows is on Fulham Road, opposite the hospital. I went secondary school at St. Thomas More, and born in Chelsea on, on Finborough Road, which is by Brompton Cemetery. It's now Princess Beatrice Hospital. Back in the uh, mid-70s, it was a maternity hospital. Um, so my love affair, and I'll say that, my love affair with Chelsea started with simply because it was my local football club. Um, as a young boy, primary school boy, it was my local club, going down there, down by the shed, used to bunk in, hope no one's listening about that, but you know, used to bunk in and go through the turnstiles and stuff like that. And then luckily enough, I say luckily enough, I was playing youth football for a team called Chelsea United, which were in um, in Fulham, they had a gentleman called Pete Benfield, who was our youth manager, who also doubled up as a scout for Chelsea. Um, now, Fulham back in them days wasn't like Chelsea. And I'm going to say this, Chelsea, whilst it was predominantly white and very white, I feel Chelsea had a different feel to it. Fulham definitely had a, a edge that as a black person, even as a young person, you picked up that it was slightly different. But I guess youth being a bit naive and also just loving football, you don't really pick up on that too much. Um, Pete Benfield asked me one day, we used to train at Home and Home School, which is on New Kings Road. He said to me one day, um, I know the setup at Chelsea. You're a Chelsea fan. Do you want to go and train with them for a bit? And I went along. Um, back then, we used to have community. I guess it would be like a community session, but back then, we used to train at Battersea. So I went over to Battersea on the AstroTurf. God knows what it'd be. It'd just be G. It wouldn't even be like a 1G. <laughs> 1G, 0G. It'd just be, yeah, it'd just be G. Um, took part in a couple of training sessions. Did well, I guess, because um, not long after that, I got a letter from the club and I got invited down to go and meet um, some of the coaching staff and I got introduced to a gentleman um, who obviously is Gwyn and I signed. Um, signed my schoolboy forms and it was just part of what you did, I guess, because you played football. Fast forward to being able to be in a position to be offered a, what was then a YTS. Um, so to put it into context, 
I was the year behind Eddie and Frank. So Eddie Newton and Frank Sinclair, they were like second year APs. I was in my first year um, AP. Um, but it got to a point where, unfortunately, the racism that was always around me and a considerable amount of time directed at me meant that I struggled with concentrating on just football matters. And I guess the best example to put it into context, um, I remember not going to train and I remember Gwyn phoning up home. And obviously this is back in the days, this is like the eighties, um, you know, like the mid, um, towards the latter end of the eighties. I was going to ask, what, uh, would a, what would you say the beginning and last year, kind of your involvement with the youth teams there was? Um, so it would be, it would be um, 80, 88, 89. Okay. Yeah. Um, and basically, I got myself. I found myself in a position where, so 80, 89, 90 season, I should say. Um, I found myself in a position where I just wasn't enjoying my experiences of playing football. Now, by this point, I had been able to have quite a good what they would call schoolboy football career, in that I went to Lillyshell, I did England under 15s, you know, so I was playing decent level football. Mm -hmm. And playing for the club that I love, the club that I support, being a ball boy there, all that kind of stuff. But I just couldn't deal with how the racism was impacting on me. And I think more importantly, I couldn't deal with why it was coming you, in you my direction. You mentioned you missed the session and, and you got a phone call um, just now before I cut you. What was that? Yeah. Like? Yeah. And I guess what I'm getting at, Yasin, is that when you realise you're being phoned by the manager, the youth manager of Chelsea, and you're basically telling your mum to tell him that you're not in. Bear in mind, these are the days when, you know, you could cover your phone and, oh, who is it? That kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She goes, Gwyn, some man called Gwyn, in a typical kind of fashion, because she didn't pay much attention, if I'm being honest about football. But some man called Gwyn from, you know, Chelsea, I was like, oh, tell him I'm not in. And at that moment, it's something that I haven't thought about I didn't think about it in the moment, but when I reflected back on that moment, that for me was when I was done. Mm. To use a modern phrase, my head had, you know, like my head had gone. And um, sorry, I, for, sorry for jumping about. Yeah, no, yeah, no. But no. Yeah. Um, I guess zooming out then is you've kind of mentioned about racism directed at you. Just quickly, um, what was kind of the the state of football and and race and conversations around it attitudes within the game in the late 80s early 90s just what what was the kind of the backdrop um i guess to give you a, a great snapshot of what it was like any chelsea fan of a certain age will remember when unfortunately we got beat um can't remember what season it was exactly but we got beat by west ham um george paris left back for west ham scored and everyone in the shed, and it felt like, the, well, I say everyone in the shed, the majority of the shed and what felt like the majority of the stadium started to sing, we ain't West Ham, we ain't West Ham, we are the West Ham haters, nigger, 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 and it just went on. And I'm sat, well, stood in the shed as a, as a youth player at Chelsea, and that moment, vividly remember it. Another example I remember, someone that's got the Chelsea archive might remember, Paul Cannibal was covered in one of our match day programmes. And just casually, a couple rows behind me, 
I remember just hearing someone say, ah, oh, for fuck's sake, why have we got that nigger in there? And they were talking about Paul Cannibal. You know, and yeah, I remember- Chelsea player, of course. Like famous, yeah, yeah, famous Chelsea yeah. player, you know? And I remember, you know, I remember just the pride that I had of being a Chelsea schoolboy, then youth player, playing for my local club, and being a fan of Chelsea, just all of those things just kind of just confused my head. So to kind of bring it back to what you said, it was that was the that was the the level of overstroke casual racism. Mm. Things that was directed towards me directly would be uh, Nignog. Um, I remember one day myself and another player that I won't mention his name, but not, just in case it caused a problem. But he was not a black player, and we were jogging back. We were jogging back from Battersea. So we used to jog and we used to jog through, go through the stoop um, that runs between Kings Road and Fulham Road into the stadium. And then when we get back to the stadium, we'd have a wash, have a bath, and then we'd get like biscuits and chocolate, you know, stuff like that after mm -hmm. the game. Mm -hmm. cut, so cut, cut like a long story short, we were jogging through the stoop. And I must admit, when we got to the stoop, I did kind of slacken a bit. But just before I got there, Gwyn had come alongside. Now, Gwyn was driving. And words to the effect of, why are you running? Why aren't you running, you nignog? You are meant to be good at running. You're never going to make it as a pro if you can't run. Now, there's two things. As a coach in, in the modern era of football, I understand using language to motivate a player. So I get the point of you're never going to be a pro if you don't want to run. But to be called a nignog and then to have the association of because I'm black, I should be able to run as a rationale for not what's wrong, pubs? Why aren't you running? Not if everything's okay. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, and again, why am I mentioning that particular moment? The amount of times I played with little injuries and little things going on. But you know what? you don't want to say anything because mm -hmm. A, you're trying to get a contract, but two, you don't want, you get made to feel like if you say something, it's going to be something's wrong with you. So you just kind of suck it up and you crack on. Did you feel, um, so in, in the big sort of expose of Gwyn Williams and, and this sort of behaviour at, at Chelsea, um, uh, he was highlighted as sort of an instigator of a lot of bullying and, and, and racial abuse. Um, did you feel that that was apparent between his interactions with yourself and young white players as well? There was different elements of autocratic coaching. To use that phrase, I guess because I've gone through an education, you know, yeah, sports yeah. science, stuff like oh, that. that. Back then, I didn't know that term within coaching. So I guess an autocratic coach by nature has more tendency to be quite bullish because... Mm. They, they want you to do things their way. Um, so there was definitely a way that he wanted things done. And there was definitely a way that either you do it this way or you don't kind of get by. But I feel the disappointing thing for me was just kind of knowing that the racism was so overt and it was so widespread, but people used to just act like it didn't happen. You know, and it's something that um, two people that I will name because they are Chelsea legends in my eyes because they went through the regime that I went through and they, they stuck through it. Frank Sinclair and Eddie Newton. Um, 
you know, at different points of being in our kind of, you know, adulthood, I've had conversations with them. Now, to give background of me, Frank and Eddie, whilst they're older than me, we grew up playing football within the same kind of areas um, in terms of our district football and schoolboy football and stuff like that, you know, and they have a lot of respect for Gwyn, understandably so, because he was the one that gave them professional contracts, so to speak. Um, and I know for a fact that they would have heard and gone through certain things. So I take my hat off to them. The difference between me and them was football was never that important to me. My integrity and who I had at home, my upbringing, my awareness of myself, coming from a Jamaican background, being aware of people like uh, Marcus Garvey, and just knowing myself, knowing who I was as a young black person meant that whilst I'm not going to go in and say that I would have been a professional footballer at Chelsea, that's not what I'm trying to say, but I wasn't prepared to put myself in a position where I'd be subjugated to that kind of abuse by someone that's meant to be developing me. Yeah. His title back then was Youth Development Manager. Yeah. That was his title. I guess what stands out to me, Pabs, is, is I know you're not for a second trying to um, uh, almost dig at players who, who went through it in a different way. I know you're not trying to do that, so don't let my question phrasing suggest that you are. But why do you think some people at that time in this late 80s period and this, that and the other allowed it um, and deemed it acceptable and just kind of got on with it and just said it was one of those things. Why now we can obviously see that it's, this is why it's hard for me to get, get my head around. Cause obviously Pabs, you and me know each other very, very well and are great friends. You know that I was born early nineties. So I've, I've grown up in a very different era and I can't get my head around how it was just the done thing, if that makes sense, which it very much feels yeah. like it was in football in those years. So what do you think, what, I guess what I'm asking is, what allowed certain players to just, and people to just say, ah, it is what it is? And what could have prevented that culturally? What could have empowered those players to just say, hold on, excuse me, this is unacceptable? I believe the biggest thing was that kind of, unwritten rule that you had to be kind of compliant and not make a fuss about it because the term chip on your shoulder every time I heard that every time I hear that there's something that I internalise when I hear that phrase because it was something that I heard frequently so I guess to simplify my answer it is just that it's that people don't want to become they don't want to feel like they're the problem so it's a combination of finding a way to block it out or just literally focusing on what it is you want to achieve. So what I mean by that is if you want to become a coach, a player, whatever it is that you're trying to achieve in your chosen field, mm. I guess you just ignore it because it's the easiest thing to do. Um, where for me, doing the easiest thing was never my first option. Yeah, it yeah. was being what was the right thing. And you know what? Uh, you know, I hear what you say about not digging people out. And in conversations that I've had with both of um, Frank and Eddie in, in our, you know, I guess, taking it into an adulthood, there's been recognition and there's been a, an appreciation that the environment that we was in, but more importantly, the era that we were playing football and how society was, it wasn't as easy because you didn't have people that looked like us mm. in coaching. You didn't have someone... You know, I think 
I might have spoken to you about this, sorry for jumping around the place, but it just made me think about it. Someone once asked me what motivated me to be a coach. And I remember thinking a lot about my time at Chelsea and saying, I wish I had someone like me when I was coming up through the system. Mm-hmm. Again, sorry for jumping around a bit. I've no, not at all, not at all. You know, I've been asked, what's my philosophy as a coach? And I would love to have a very pep-ish philosophy. My philosophy is very simple. Develop the young person, not just a footballer. Because what I went through made me realise if we create people that are good people and they, that they see the content of someone's uh, character, their heart, so to speak, that's more important. And all these things, ironically, without me being aware of it, because it, I guess I didn't have the education, all these things made me become, hopefully, a better coach mm-hmm. than some of the people that I had coaching me, yeah. to put it bluntly. So you, know? you, you say there was sort of no representation of people um, like yourself at, at the club um, in terms of a coaching role or senior role or anything like that. Was it discussed amongst players? When you get... Um, the comments you got when you were jogging back, things that might get said at half-time or in training, was it discussed amongst yourselves, even though of how young you were? Yeah, it was discussed. And you know what? That famous word that starts with B and not black, banter. That's, mm. what, that's basically what it was. Ah, don't worry about it, pubs. Don't worry about it, you know? Um, I, I'm jumping all over the place. Um, fast forward a number of years, I was playing for Mosey FC another Chelsea legend in my eyes, Clive Walker. He was our manager at Mosley Football Club. And we played away Tuesday night. I remember it very well. We played at Hungerford Town. Um, I remember it well because one of the few times that I scored a goal, actually, like away. But cut a long story short, I was number seven. And when I scored my goal, the announcer said, number seven goal scorer, Pablo Blackman. And literally, the few hundred people in the in the in the game, in the stand, started to laugh. A few of my players started to laugh. Refs started to laugh. Um, because they, they laughed at my name, Pablo Blackman. And he goes, that's your name, right? I goes, no, it's Blackwood. And he, and he turned around, the ref, and goes, but you're a black man, so I guess it doesn't matter, does it? <laughs> and now, whilst I found it funny that the um, stadium announcer had, I don't know how and why, because Blackwood and Black. Man, it's his little Freudian slip there, I think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. But the fact that... Um, now, I find it funny, to be fair. I'm not going to lie. But it was the fact that he just kind of rushed it off as, but you're a black man. Yeah, without any sort of... Oh, <laughs> sorry, mate. Da, 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 any UK. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And um, the reason why I say that is because... I don't know if Clive Walker will, will recall it, if he even listens, but... It, I remember him saying to me, are you all right? Because a few people laughed about that, but are you all right about it? And it was interesting because I said I was all right. And because, I mean, I mean, you know me, yes. my sense of humor is definitely not PC. Of course, yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? But so, also, I think, also, I think, one, if you, if you don't mind, firstly, I yeah. think it's very significant that of all the people in that sort of semi-pro setting, the only one to ask if you were all right and check if you were all right was someone who would have gone through the same thing. But if, if I may be um, or been around the same thing or seen the same thing. Yeah. It, but if I may be a bit bold and, and sort of talk about yourself, which is something I've always noticed and I'm li- hearing things now link it back to that sort of experiences of yours. I feel like you may have, you, you do brush things off 
quite easily. You're quite hard to get agitated and wound up. And I do wonder if you'd been forced to do that from a very young age, um, considering the environment. 100%. Um, It doesn't fill me with any pride to admit, and I'm going to probably give you an insight into myself that not even you may have picked up on. When I was young at school, I... I lived in Chelsea first and foremost so there were certain areas within the local area that I travelled to where I would know I'm going to get racism and I used to just be hot-headed trust me like anyone who knows me from a certain age they would know I didn't punch I was a kicker I had long legs I was flexible I was doing MMA style kick before I even knew what MMA was but it quickly got to a point where you'd be told you was wrong you were wrong and also you realise that if you do that on a football pitch, you get sent off. And you realise that you give people ammunition. You realise that if people see they can get at you, they can then use it to get at you. So I did develop, a, a, I guess, a thick skin. I did develop a defence mechanism where internally I was fuming. I was not broken, but I was vexed, like internally crying. But externally, if anything, it pushed me to play harder. It pushed me to kind of show you. but yeah, you've just brought up something that I guess I've not dismissed, but not spent a lot of time thinking about in that I developed the way I developed. And ironically, thinking about it, I might become part of the problem because in my later years, it may have made me more likely to brush something off that shouldn't have been brushed mm-hmm. off. And it's I mean, interesting that you... Yeah, to man, it's something I'd always noticed, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I mean obviously you know my time at QPR and the reason why this subject is so pertinent to me is because I got asked to do a Black History Month piece in October of 2014 and it was um, myself, Les Ferdinand, um, Johnny Critchlow, whether he's playing football now, Chris Ramsey, cut long story short, I was asked a question in one of the interviews, what are my experiences as a black man within the football industry? And I mentioned not too dissimilar to the story that I've just given to you about my experiences as a youth player at Chelsea um, and nothing of it, didn't think anything of it. Um, our, our head of um, comms at the time, he passed it off, Les passed it off. The club passed it off. Essentially, it was on the QPR social media platforms. Yeah, yeah. I think this wasn't, uh, um, this wasn't uh, too long after I joined, so I do exactly. remember well, yeah. yeah. A few months later, the PFA apparently got in touch with the club and we were told it had to come down. I got pulled into the office by our CEO, and he said, uh, Pabs, unfortunately, the piece that you've done, we need to take it down. And the first thing I asked was, why? I was thinking, why is the PFA asking it to be taken down? And he said, because in the same sentence, you used Chelsea, Gwen Williams, and races. I said, let's just get one thing clear. Whilst I know he was racist, and whilst he was racist to me, I didn't call him out on that piece because that wasn't my platform to call him out on that piece Mm. but it was my platform to give my experiences of Chelsea and what I did say was due to my experiences of racism whilst playing at Chelsea I remember at a point of knowing that my head had gone and I was asked what do you mean can you elaborate and I said it was when my manager at the time Gwyn Williams phoned me to ask me why I didn't come to training Mm -hmm. and I told my mum blah 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 So anyway, the reason why I mentioned that is because it got taken down. I offered, along with the producer of the piece, to get it edited. 
just to make it easier for it to stay up there. Yeah, but it didn't. It didn't go back See, up. No, there. no. I'm glad you brought it up because I didn't really want to pry and, and remind you of it in in an interview. It's going to be public and stuff. But I'm glad you brought it up because I remember being fuming at the time, as I'm sure you were, but also not surprised that a governing body like people with their reputation to protect and careful of lawsuits and this that, and the other would put that sort of stuff before a person and before discrimination. How yeah. does with with that right? And being a man more senior than me, I'm interested to know how you feel now when you see, obviously we're in a recent wake of George Floyd's killing. And obviously we're recording this and chatting in, in the wake of everything that's happening in a lot of the countries of the Western world, um, sort of protesting that Black Lives Matter police brutality needs to be done and it's racially uh, motivated in the vast majority of cases. And we see that. And I know you and me have sort of been, how do I word this, saying that for a very long, long time. And it seems like a lot of people have only just realised that. When you see things now, like there's even a thing today that when the Premier League comes back, they're going to have Black Lives Matter written on the back of the shirt um, alongside the NHS. Now, when you see stuff like that, obviously it's a positive step. But do you have any resentment that this has been happening for so long that no one's and no one's listened to it? Or are you just like, you know what, whatever is happening now, who cares? Yeah, there's there's naturally a level of resentment. I mean, if I'm being honest, it, it's part of the problem isn't when people say they're not racist. Is if you don't call it out or try to act on not being racist, if you're just happy to take part in a campaign for a day, a week, a month, wear a kick it out, kick racing matter football t-shirt, Black Lives Matter. If you're just going to do that because it's on trend and it's something that you should do, my frustration is when are, a bit like integrity, what are you doing when no one isn't shining that light of Black Lives Matter or anti-racism? Mm. When you're in an environment and someone is casually being racist, when you're in an environment and someone is making racial comments or stuff, are you being anti-racist then? You know, are you are you going to be tolerant of certain behaviours? And that, to bring it back to my frustration, that was my frustration because when last year, August, when Dr. Bernardo's and Guardian and stuff like that, they done the expose on Gwyn, I remember thinking no one from QPR had reached out to me to say, Pablo, you know what, in light of what has now come public, Bear in mind, this was five years prior to me mentioning it. Mm. In light of what has become public, do you want to talk to someone? Do you want, you know, no one come back to me. I had to reach out to the club and say, I wonder, in light of what's happened, if we are going to revisit the conversation <laughs> that I had. Yeah. You know, and you know who come to my, who come in my corner? Gone. Troy Townsend from Kick It Out. Because someone, you know, it's like in the football industry. Yeah, yeah. Someone yeah. through the grapevine had made him aware of what's going on and he reached out to me and he came down to the club and said pb if you want to talk about it or if you want to raise it on a higher level feel free to and i said to him you know what troy i said the problem is i don't want qpr to look bad in this situation but it is part of the problem when if is that if as an industry we're going to make the victims feel like they've done something wrong. Because from my point of view... All the victims have to have to go above and beyond to yeah. do something about it, right? Because and that's they're, how it, they're not the ones who that owner should be on. 
Exactly. And that's how it felt. It felt like if QPR's main focus was, you know, because quote unquote, I was told, to be fair, this was before you came to us at Chelsea. It was your time. Um, sorry, it, it was before you come to us at QPR. It was your time at Chelsea. And I remember thinking, it's no different to the historical pedophilia that goes on in football. You know, just because someone has experienced something, it doesn't mean that if you, the current employee or current friend, for want of a better term, you know, if I bring something to you as a friend, I wouldn't expect you to say, ah, oh, perhaps you know what, that was before our <laughs> friendship. Before met, so mate, I don't, might wanna, yeah, yeah, so I don't know if it's something that we should talk about. Do you know what I mean? I'd like you to think, well, boy, perhaps you know what, it's before I knew you, but if I can talk to you, by all means, let's have a chat. So it's just little yeah. things like that. So to kind of bring it back into focus to what you've asked me, my concern is for the people that are surprised and shocked by what they're seeing, just, be, just think about this. What you're seeing has always been seen by some people. Mm. It's your privileged filter that has allowed you not to notice it or notice it and care not to raise it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You, you, you touched on something um, just then about um, sort of child sexual abuse in football and stuff. I wanted to bring this up. Um, I don't know if you've seen it because it only came out today. Um, and it's on the athletics, so it's behind a paywall and all sorts of stuff. Um, the Chelsea are apparently being taken to the high court um, by four ex-youth team players, and it might be another 10 preparing similar cases. Long story short, um, it's over the, the racist abuse that they suffered whilst, whilst youth team players. But where there's a bit of a controversy brewing is the fact that the club are essentially saying that the lawsuit should not be with them. It should be with Gwyn Williams individually. Whereas in the sexual abuse cases, um, they kind of just made payouts straight away. Now, I think Chelsea, to their credit, have done a lot publicly and potentially internally to sort of turn the tide around with the less savoury aspects of the club. But when you hear that, do you feel like that's an appropriate thing to do? Do you feel like they're probably not taking the responsibility and ownership that they need to? Um, or do you feel like it's a difficult one and you're somewhere in between? What, what do you think when you hear that? Um, I guess there's two sides of it. I understand the rationale behind the point that it's with the person, but the person was employed and representative of Chelsea. The way how he was so overtly racist, in my opinion, is only because he knew that it would be tolerated. Now, mm -hmm. let me be clear. I'm not by any means saying that everyone around him would have shared his racist rants, for, for, for example. But the point I'm trying to make is, it's a bit like joint enterprise. If you stand around and do nothing and don't try and stop it, when you go to court, the judge will find you guilty. He's not going to say, well, I understand, Yasin, that it was Pablo that done it. If you get asked, did you try to stop or did you do anything you could to stop it from happening? If you answer no to both of those, then unfortunately you're going to be culpable and you're going to be associated with my malactions. So, you know, it's easy for the club to distance themselves now. But I'll put it like this. And I remember Ken Bates at the time kind of alluding to the fact that people just wanted money from the club and I remember thinking you know what I don't even want money my thing is just recognize 
that it existed because that was what was important. It was when you are complaining about things and bringing it up and people say, no way, man, you can't, you know, but then if that's the case, how come no one didn't say nothing? Or they say things like, yeah, but look at that. When you came through, Eddie came through, Frank came through, Andy Myers, you know, all these names that people, you know, mention, but it doesn't mean that it didn't exist. So <laughs> I'm not sure if I've answered anything, but it's no, just it's that a, kind it's of... A, it's a tough one to answer, to be honest. Yeah, with. Um, I just, yeah you know, yeah, it, it's... I, I get the point of saying it's with Gwyn, but unfortunately, Gwyn was a, an employee and representative of Chelsea Football Club. So, just to cut you, Pabs, obviously you and me are yeah. more familiar with the academy systems now, and you and me have yeah. both worked with welfare officers, safeguarding, rare tear, tear, all ad nauseum, right? And there's, there's all these support networks um, around in the modern day. Back then, do you feel the club could have done more? Was there ways you could have whistleblown stuff? Or were people like Gwyn Williams just a law unto themselves? I think that's the biggest thing, isn't it? It's you don't want to you don't want to be the one that says something because you know how's gonna how's gonna flare up. Do you know what I mean? Because it's mm. it's a bit like it's a bit like the kind of situation where the, we know something's wrong going on, but you can't the person that you need to call out, you have to go to them to call them out. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, so that's, that's kind of what I mean, I guess. Was yeah. was the setup in those days so, uh, I guess, bare bone that you would have had to go through Gwyn himself for anything. Essentially, yeah. Cool. yeah. And another thing is, is, the reality of it is, it's like human nature, isn't it? There's a lot of people that privately will agree with you and your views on certain things. But if you ask them publicly to support you, it's not quite the same. And again, I'm not digging anyone out, but I couldn't be sure that if I needed someone to say, actually, yeah, we I did hear what Pablo said. I can't be sure if they would have done that. Mm. Bear in mind, the, the way it would have been dealt with would have been that person in the room with you. So it's a bit unfair to expect someone to call it out, but know that then they have to deal with that person afterwards. Do you know what I mean? That kind of uh, thing. Definitely. So, you know, so yeah. I, um, again, it kind of comes back to why I enjoy having the role that I have within football nowadays and being able to talk about this kind of situation because yeah, I'm a genuine believer if we aren't able to have these uncomfortable and difficult conversations aside from education and empathy being key for us hopefully creating a society that we all want we need to be able to have these conversations we need I don't need someone to agree and say Pablo yeah you're right but I need someone to actually acknowledge that the problem that I'm talking about did exist or does exist and that, for me, is the biggest um, frustration, is that we seem to either want to treat football as separate to society, so football is racist. No one walks into Stamford Bridge and becomes racist. You know, you don't walk through the turnstiles and think, oh, I feel a bit racist now. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? That doesn't happen. You go, you go a racist and leave a racist. In the same way, racist people are in all aspects of society. But my, cons my concern with football is we either are able to see in see in others, i.e. the FA, are able to call out other FAs for their uh, tolerance of racism, mm. but didn't seem to see it when it was happening, oh, you know, when it happened to us. Chelsea fans blindly will support John Terry when there's situations that occurred where he was racist. Now, 
is John Terry racist? I can't prove he is. Did he use racist language? Yes, he is. Do you know what I mean? There's a big difference between being racist and using racist language. But we won't even admit he used racist language because some of us feel if we admit that, it makes us culpable, you know? As a yeah. white person, I, I, don't, I don't need you as a white person to say, um, I agree with you, Pab. But it'd be nice if, as a white person, you say, I acknowledge that it exists. Yeah, when we have this kind of like, no, you know. It becomes, it becomes be very tribal very quickly. Yeah, you know, and I think that's what Chelsea done. Let's be honest, no one wants to be labelled a racist club. So I can understand when people that are much more higher profile named than me and more significant than me would have spoke out about Gwyn's racism. Of course it wouldn't have been a nice thing as club trustees and board members to deal with. But it would have been nice if, if rather than dismiss it and act like, well, we don't know about that, it would have been nice if there was like, you know what, if that's the case, we don't condone it, but we would like to find out if it existed. It shouldn't yeah, have to yeah. take how many years later for people to have to then come forward. You know, mm. it's that mm -hmm. kind of, yeah. Just on, on something, perhaps I know you got, I got, I know you got to shoot off in a minute. Yeah. So two things I really want to check in on to finish. And the first one, you, you kind of dovetailed into it quite nice, is obviously you remain a Chelsea fan. Um, you and me, like from day one, I think bonded over that. And, and um, I know you're still passionately a Chelsea fan. Um, and I've been down Stamford Bridge with you a few times, which I imagine must be conflicting in at times. Um, what, racism still is very inherent in society, especially it's definitely in the UK. And we won't hear anything other than anything against that. There is something like you alluded to about football that for whatever reason, football stadiums just seem to bring out the worst in people with those views. Um, I don't know whether it is the anonymity in a crowd or the tribalism of it or what it is, but for some reason, that is where you seem to see some of the worst of it. Do you think, um, and I, I think it's an oversimplification to say, so-and-so is racist as a club, so-and-so is racist as an organisation, because there'll always be exceptions to the rule. Do you think that Chelsea, historically, um, whether in the club or the fan base, have had more of an issue with racism than other clubs? Um, and if so, why do you think that is? Um, so, before I even started to play for the club, to use that phrase, I used to obviously go to the games and into the shed. And I remember seeing National Front stalls on the Fulham Road and they'd be giving out leaflets and they'd be giving out whatever stuff they were giving, you know. Um, so I feel there's a couple of things. We have to remember that we are living in a society where, unfortunately, politics identity and using colour to identify people Will, will and always become an issue and can create an ideology of superiority, inferiority and fear and stuff like that. So from my experience of growing up in and around Chelsea and playing youth football in Fulham and certain places, there were certain places where it was very much, now we would call it far right. When I was young, I didn't know what I was called. I just called it racism because there were certain places that I went in Fulham where I just got racist abuse for no reason. You know what I mean? Like, and what I feel happens is people will use any platform to promote their ideology. So what I'm trying to get at is if 
the same way we bonded over Chelsea Football Club, if two racist people bond over racism at Chelsea, they will then use that platform to bond with other people who are racist. Yeah. And that would be my simple way of looking at it. You know, like I said, no one walks through Chelsea's turnstile or any of the stands and becomes racist in the process of going to a football match. You have to go to that, you have to go into that environment with your racist ideology. And the same way we bonded over the love of Chelsea and stuff like that, people will bond over racism. Yeah, you know, I, so guess, I guess I guess it's a question then, because you're absolutely right. I guess it's a question of on a deeper level, because Chelsea for listen, whether it's just Chelsea have the misfortune of being in headlines more than a lot of clubs, um, or there genuinely is more of a racism problem in historic aspects of the fan base. Um you look at certain clubs and I won't name clubs, but there are clubs who are very much linked to anti-racism. There are clubs who are very left-wing. There are clubs who are very right-wing. There are there's certain clubs do have core fan bases um, that espouse certain values. Now, Chelsea in the modern day, I, I don't see it as much personally. Um, and I know when you and me have been down Stamford Bridge, it's, it's just a pretty family-friendly environment yeah. now and everything. But I don't know, I feel like historically, what would have drawn those people to Chelsea in particular? Or do you think that's just a product of the time and it wasn't a Chelsea exceptionalism at all? Yeah, I mean, again, I, you know, I feel we have to look at the wider society that we live in. Um, you know, I think about playing against Millwall and going to Millwall and stuff like that. There are certain places certain parts of London, certain places that I used to generally, not fear, but hate going to because I just knew I was going to get subjected to racism. So I feel, I feel if you are a racist and you, um, you subscribe to racist ideology, I feel you naturally will get drawn to an environment where you will be more accepted to demonstrate your racism. Mm. So what I'm trying to get at is, I wonder how many fans that are now Chelsea fans wasn't even Chelsea fans. And what I mean by that is, my racist ideals is my motivation for going to Chelsea. Yeah. So if supporting Chelsea allows me to find people that support those racist ideals, I support Chelsea. Because... Yeah. And yeah, I so get that if that, yeah. if that changed now, then yeah. maybe that's part because of the Because let's be honest, I, I would love to speak to any so-called true hardcore Chelsea fan that doesn't love Didier Drogba. He's like, you know, he, he, he's our big man for the big occasion. There, I can't think of one significant cup final that we've not taken away the silverware and he's not been a significant. Maybe the cup winner's cup. He but then that's, the cup and that's, the, that's the, the thing, thing, isn't it? It's like, Sterling only, what, a year or two years ago? There was Welbeck three or four years ago. And these people would have been cheering Drogba's goals. It's that exceptionalism of he's all right, he's one of us. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, how do you explain that as someone who must have seen that so often? You know what? I'm, I, I'm laughing because just the madness of it. I remember being up in the Wirral with um England team. And we were having like a representative match. And I remember a young lad on the Wirral 
who balls gone into the crowd. I've gone to get the ball back, and he made a monkey kind of gesture at me with his arms going up underneath his, um, you know, armpits. After he threw the ball back to me, and I remember his dad patting him on his head, but not patting him like disgusted, patting him like he was petting him, like "Well done, son. You've done well," kind of thing. And I remember thinking, you paid to come and watch me play football. Do you know what I mean? And what I'm getting at is, if you're an English fan and you're also a Chelsea fan, if you were racially abusing Raheem Sterling, when Raheem Sterling puts on an England shirt and scores for England or plays well for England and you're accepting of him, where is the logic in that? So I guess that's, that's where we have, it, it's a, it literally, to use the phrase, it, it feels like a madness. Because on one hand, I remember being in the shed and I remember people cheering Keith Jones, Keith Dublin, Cannonville, etc. But at the same time, racially abusing the opposition black players. Mm. You know, and that is a snapshot of where it is a madness because in some, in some way, shape or form, the blue shirt of Chelsea overrides the blackness of the player's skin when they're in a blue shirt of Chelsea. But the black skin of the opposition player overrides whatever kit they're wearing, mm. you know? And to, to kind of put it blunt, if someone is shit, do they have to be a black shit? If someone's a bastard, do they have to be a black bastard? Do you know what I'm saying? It's when you have to draw upon someone's race or their color as your first and foremost, I'm gonna get at Raheem because he's black, you know? If he's shit, he's shit. He shouldn't have to be a black so-and-so-and-so. Mm. If he's a cheat, he's a cheat. He shouldn't have to be a black so-and-so cheat. Can you see what I'm getting at? It's yeah, it, is, it shows where the priorities of, uh, of criticism, I guess, for those people come from, of what you really are disliking that person for. Um, yeah, because if I'm a cheat, I'm a cheat. It's true. It's a tough one, man, because, like you said, it's a madness. So it's hard to rationalise and understand of madness sometimes. These sort of uh, headlines that have come out today and what the club are being taken to high court of is those youth players who went through similar experiences yourself have cited that they have long-term psychological damage, including depression, anger, and relationship issues, to quote the report itself. Um, now, you, you thankfully have, have sort of used it as a motivator um, and sort of got yourself out of it early enough um, like you said, there was things bigger than it. Football to you, you're using sort of those experiences as one of your main motivators of coaching young people and developing young people, um, as I've seen you do up close very, very well. Um, do you empathise with that, though? And was there times in your life where, I guess not even times in your life, like looking whole big picture, there's the positive as well, but how did these experiences, or just in football generally, but of course the Chelsea is as well, impact you as a man and impact your outlook and impact any resentment or anger you had or or anything like that or was it purely just the motivating factor no uh, there's a couple of things as a black man it's frustrating when i have to justify why i support chelsea football club um and what i mean by that is i get asked i've been on coaching seminars networks etc just in society when I'm, I mean, and you know, I'm a passionate Chelsea fan, shirts, everything. You know what I mean? I'm not that guy. I'm a very proud Chelsea fan. But it's, 
there's a level of not a shame, but there's a level of disappointment that you feel that because of the association, historical association of racism at Chelsea, that sometimes you then get looked at like, like I hope you picked up on that, like people tuck mm, when mm. they hear that you're a Chelsea fan. Do you know what I mean? It's almost like, you know, you have to deal with that and you have to then justify why you still are a Chelsea fan in spite of what you've gone through and, and, and being a part of the club's, you know, DNA. Um, in terms of how it impacted on me, I'm not going to lie. I, you know, it doesn't fill me with any pride, but I went through a period of time where, in my opinion, all white people were racist. Simple. Mm. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And I'm lucky that I had wonderful examples of school friends and, and teachers and other colleagues and people around me that obviously I don't subscribe to that kind of mindset. But as a young boy growing up as a teenager, because, yeah, I didn't get much examples of white people that didn't seem to see my colour before they saw me. So it led me to believe that, well, if you're white, then you're going to be like racist. So what I'm trying to get at, I went, I used to kind of expect racism and look for racism. You know what I mean? And yeah. I'm probably guilty of, there's probably people that are, I might even need to like, apologise to where I might have accused them of being racist just because they responded or said something in a way that triggered me and my experience, you know? Um, there's, yeah, there's so much, there's so much that I could probably go into that would take up a whole other Zoom call about yeah. how it impacts on you as a person. Um, and yeah, it made me an angry man. It made me an angry person. It made me an angry person that, you know, my last game um, this season was um, Chelsea Villa. And I went down there um I went straight out to work, but I managed to sneak home and get changed and get out my QPR kit because I didn't think that would be like a good idea. But it was refreshing to be in Stamford Bridge, in the old Shed End, and, yeah, there was a lot of um, tribalism and stuff like that, but it was refreshing to see that people, even if they haven't changed what they think, they obviously change what they say, you know? And I think that's all what would be what I would want. I want people to be able to recognise that systematic and institutional racism doesn't just impact you over 90 minutes. It mm. has a legacy. It has a legacy of what it can make you become, how it can make you view other people, how it can, you know, how it can make you... Imagine if I had internalised it in such a way that any white player that I'm supposed to be developing, I see that as a problem. Do you know mm. what I mean? Our relationship probably wouldn't be, you know, what it is. Do you know mm. what I mean? So there's so much that it can create in people that um, I think it's, you know, I don't know who the four are, but I know for a fact it's a massive issue. It, it's a massive issue. Some of the disenfranchisement, disenfran you know, the way some people are disenfranchised from society arguably is a legacy of being marginalised and yeah, racism. Absolutely. You know, so we could go on and on, but um, I just will, I would, what I kind of want to conclude on is people just need to maybe not feel guilt don't feel because you agree with someone's statement that it means that you are racist or not racist but just education and empathize have conversations with people like me have conversations with people that are on the receiving end that sometimes you might not even intend to be racist but what you say could be perceived as racist and understand why that is you know like what Clive Walker when he pulled me to the side and said, Pabs, are you okay? 
there was it was wonderful because there was a, a there was a recognition that although you was laughing at the time when they said Pablo Blackman, I'm acknowledging that you might not be okay with that. You know, and that one thing will always stay with me. That one thing will actually override what I went through with Gwyn because it reminds me that sometimes people are able to look past what is going on in front of them. And Gwyn, I don't know what his motivation is. I've never spoken to him about it. You know, the fact of the matter is he produced black players that played for the club that signed professional contracts. You know, so a bit like Ron Atkinson when he said... This episode is sponsored by Schwann's.com. What are you having for dinner tonight? Hmm, good question. Schwann's Home Delivery has a solution for you. Stock up your freezer with high-quality frozen foods like premium meats and sides, delicious ready-made meals, ice cream, and more. No subscriptions, no memberships, just a friendly yellow truck that's been delivering food for almost 70 years. Listeners of this show get a special deal. Get 20% off your first order with code YUM20. Check out schwanns.com backslash yum for details. You said about Desai, yeah. you know, it, 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 it's, I would love to know what his motivation, maybe in his mind, with his level of education and his level of life experience, he generally thought that was the best way to motivate people is to use their race as a factor. Maybe he thought he was toughening us up. You know, I don't know. Like maybe he thought if I'm racist to you, it would allow you to do with it when you get it elsewhere. I don't, I really don't know. But it, it, it would be nice if he was able to come forward and give an, an account. Thanks so much, um, Pabs, for your time, man. I appreciate that some of that stuff might have not been, um, not been nice yeah. to, to dig back up, up. So I really do appreciate you no, taking it. No, it isn't. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. It isn't nice. But you know what? I'd be a hypocrite. You know, I do believe these uncomfortable and difficult conversations need to happen because, and I want to thank you for giving me a, a platform and an opportunity to talk about it in the current context of what we're going through in society. Because I do believe, sorry to kind of take the time, I do believe no, no, that we are, I do believe we are on a cusp of awakening because there's a lot more people that are actually finally saying, you know what, the penny's dropped. I'm able to see certain things that I wasn't seeing, even though they were happening, yeah. you know? So I hope for people that have listened, you know, if they want to reach out to me, if they want to speak to me further, I'd be more than willing to share my experiences. And if somehow Gwyn Williams hears this, wow, I'd love for him to, um, to you know, not, I don't need an apology if I'm being honest, but it'd be nice to hear his understanding yeah. of what he thought he was doing. Well, oh, well. I mean, we'll see. We'll see what may come from from any of these cases and and anything that may come from him. But I think you're right in that it's a very interesting time in terms of the waves of awareness that seem to be uh, popping up um, regarding it. It's just a case of whether people to keep that same energy internally as externally and and whether it carries on. So hopefully it does. Pabs, man, really appreciate it, my brother, and I'll, I'll speak to you soon. Anyway. Um, and take care. You take care, brother. Lesson. Speak to you soon. So, boys, having heard that, having heard some of the things that Pablo went through, had to say, also Pablo's views on the matter, where do you guys really stand now as, as fans of the club in the modern day on Chelsea's response to this issue? Um, so, with me, obviously, I, I read the, um, the Athletic um, article, and first of all, I was disgusted by everything that was happening. Um, embarrassed actually but in terms of res the response um 
I feel like Chelsea's initial response was was positive. Um, but my issue is, and the, the players that were suing had every right to be upset, had every right to believe that um, the club were being hypocritical because, like, the club released a statement in terms of Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter um, and the players were um, formed a, a H, excuse me, in training to... Um, to represent solidarity towards the movement and everything that's going on in the world right now. But I feel like you, on one hand, you, you, you can't do those kind of things where in a legal case about race, you're kind of trying to, de- well, not in kind of, you're in somewhat, in some ways deflecting away from the wrongs that you, I want to say you as the club, but members of staff whilst employed by you they did the wrongs and whilst they're employed by you and whilst the players were under your due care you are responsible for those players care not the manager so yes it was the it was the, the youth team coach that did the wrong and wronged these players but that wrong is still Chelsea's to own and I feel like it's absolutely imperative that Chelsea own these these, these situations I feel like they in the sense that they've apologized unreservedly they've apologized offered a lot of help financial help psychological help but I feel like this is slightly a kick in the teeth um I feel like they they need to get in front of it immediately and take whatever comes to them because I don't feel like the one thing that you can't try and do is redirect the blame because it was a culture at the club it wasn't just the youth team coach and I don't want to say his name because he's a piece of he's a piece of shit now it wasn't all on him. It was about the culture in place. And as much as, as much as Chelsea want to just blame Mr. Williams, I don't think that's acceptable. I don't think that's acceptable. And I thought it's the, the, the right thing for them to do is take full accountability, even though it's not their mess, even though it's not the new regime's mess. Um, they absolutely need to denounce what happened. They need to they, first of all, they need to criticise former ownership a million percent. Ken Bates has to get criticised for this. Like they, they, he has to because this all fell on his lap. I know he's friends with with this this coach as well. Um, so no, uh, for me, it Chelsea need to handle it better. I feel like initially it was okay, but now they've gone back. I guess on what was said, and they didn't try to argue that. It apparently, wasn't them. Um, whose lawyers are fighting? It's um, their insurers, but they're still representing Chelsea. You still have the power in that moment. You still have the power to kind of control what what's being what's happening. So, I feel like a lot of what they're doing in the community is good stuff. But I'm starting to look at it and think maybe this is just for the optics because how they're moving now in court um, is quite worrying, you know, for me anyway. Yeah, no. I I agree with a lot with a lot of what Mita said already, but um, I do I do feel strongly about the fact that everything that the club's trying to do now in terms of trying to fight the whole you know racism and and you know treating people equal and all of that. Now, if you're gonna do that, when you stumble across things like this, and when you come across things like this, you you definitely have to drag you. You, you have to take blame. I think you definitely have to take responsibility. You have to take blame, take account, like, accountability because at the end of the day, he's your employee at the end of the day. So you need to know what's, what's going on in and around your club and inside the club. Do you know what I mean? If you're 
you can't just pretend that you're not aware that these things are happening. Mm. Do you understand that? That's, you, def- you definitely cannot do that. And, and then on top of that, and surely there were complaints. Surely, yeah. there were complaints. surely the complaints started long before this. Uh, because people always say, oh, why did you wait 20 years for this to, to come out? Well, no. I probably yeah. you might have said it when I was like, I might have said it when I was 12. But you weren't listening to me. You weren't trying to hear what I had to say at 12. So I had to bite my tongue until I was an actual adult to then complain. Yeah. And then you're going to try and throw it back in my face. Why didn't you complain when you were 12? It's bollocks. Yeah. I think Ken Bates so was one time. Yeah. Sorry, Ken Bates' response one time was, I think the they were like 13, 14 at the time when they complained. Oh, if you don't like it, they could have found another youth club. What kind of response is that? What kind of response is that? When you're going through abuse, you're often taught and pushed to stay silent. You're pushed to stay silent, otherwise it will get worse. So a lot of these players have complained. A lot of these players have voiced a concern. A lot of these players made it very clear that they weren't happy and they wanted to move on. But sometimes... In, especially in the youth academy setup, it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. So I, that kind of rhetoric makes me sick. Absolutely sick. Yeah. Same. And I think, and I think that's what I'm saying as well. Like, if you're gonna really fight this this um this problem, that's deep rooted in the club, and it's very very much still deep rooted in the club as well. Like in terms of the fans and mm. and in terms of people that you know, there's there's loads of people that still involved in the club that have probably been on the side of that. Do you know what I mean? Like in supporting that that stupidness. But at the end of the day. You got to drag everybody through the mud, bro, including yourself. Mm-hmm. You got, you got. If you really want to make make a make a statement in terms of you fighting this whole this whole um, thing for racism and for equality and all of this, then you've got to drag yourself through the mud and just come out on the other side. Let everybody see for their own. Like, if you're if you're blatantly showing them that you feel that strongly about it, that you're ready to to um, take the blame yourself, no mm-hmm. matter what the what the um, response is going to be from like the clubs or whatever or the fans sorry or whatever then it is what it is then people can see it for, for it being genuine but if you're just doing this thing of like statements and taking a knee at training when you know for a fact that the players have been told to do it mm-hmm. do you know what I mean it's like it's, it's that's never good enough so you need to these problems properly take, take full accountability and that way people might start seeing Chelsea differently like, they already do. I think a lot of people do start. Like some people do see Chelsea trying to do different things and trying to fight it. But I think the majority still don't believe it. So the, the club's done well in terms of repair. I mean, Roman Abramovich deserves like mad credit because he he's done a lot to repair the the reputation, and he's always consistently fighting against the negative con- connotations of former management and Chelsea's wretched past. But um. The difficulty in this situation is that Roman's thinking about it. He didn't probably didn't even know about all of this kind of stuff when he bought the club. So I understand from a from a business I understand from a personal level him thinking, well, this has got nothing to do with me and my Chelsea. But at the same time, once you buy a play once you buy a club or buy an asset or buy any sort of business, you take on people's bad debt. You take on a business's bad debt. And unfortunately, in this instance, this is a bad debt. And this is a, bit, a debt that needs to be repaid somewhere or another. And I know that, yes, they've been compensating them um, in one way or another, but clearly it's not enough. Clearly it's not enough. And something, something needs to give. And I, I genuinely feel like Chelsea have a responsibility here. And I feel like they would probably do a lot better in terms of the, the optics, considering this is how much they care about it. They do a lot better by getting in front of this, owning it, 
and then because that's the only way you can really move on and truly move on um if if you handle things accordingly not trying to do things dirtily and sweep things under the rug and say oh yeah go to 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 mr williams and you know let him handle it and sue him instead of us no that that you can't do it like that you can't do it like that i don't i, I think that's poor that's poor so you know whilst i gave them credit for what they're trying to do in terms of what they've tried to do in the past um, in terms of clean up their image this needs to this needs to be done and addressed properly otherwise there'd be no way we can move on properly you also need to to take ownership of this for me um you know, i think the the reason we're in such a position now you know if you, you look at things like systemic racism and just general ignorance ignorance is that people want to sort of brush over the past and you know even if it is so, you know something that hasn't happened on the romans watch it's still owned by the club um you know you've got a guy who you know for, for listeners listen, like listening in like win williams was basically everything to do with chelsea's academy setup he kind of dictated your entire career so you know these players well, if they wanted to speak out they would have to probably speak to him there, there was no one really to talk to in, in that kind of day and age and again if you're a kid you're, you're 11 you're 12 you know, you're thinking like, this is my only chance to be a professional footballer. I'm just going to put up with this and, and whatever and then try and get through it. But, you know, it's, it's not the right way to approach it. I, I would love to see the club, you know, I think they've been really, really positive in how they've kind of led the way in a lot of this stuff, particularly with COVID and, and sort of the social issues we're seeing. But that also means that they have to take ownership of things that have happened previously. You know, we can't continue to brush things under the rug and just assume that people will just shrug their shoulders and get on with things. I think that ownership aspect is is key and I would I think as Mead said I'd like to see them get out in front of this and actually really kind of take a, a sort of proactive approach here because otherwise which all we're doing is just perpetuating history and for me that is, is certainly not good enough for this club that is uh, you know really trying to distance itself from a lot of the stuff we've seen in the 70s and 80s going into the 90s at the club as well so yeah they, there's a lot to do there but um, I'm hopeful that they actually see what they're doing and if they're actually taking a, a legal perspective from insurers rather than their own kind of moral compass mm. hopefully the moral compass kind of straightens themselves out and they can actually get ahead of this i think that's bang on and uh, yeah i hope hope that they kind of get a bit of the feedback and and get a wind of, of how this is looking and maybe realize that there's a better way to handle it especially for those who are affected most importantly boys i think that's a good place to to leave today um Thanks again for all your time, as usual. Um, see you all next week on our last pod before the season restart. Yes, don't forget to check out Touchdown Fracas, the main pod, on a Monday. Every week, don't forget. Well, and if you're a United fan, Make United Great Again, Muga, is out on a Tuesday. So if you're that way inclined, feel free to check them out. Also on a Wednesday, there's Cop and Fracas. That's a Liverpool-centric pod, so if you're keen... And you support the You Never Walk Alone merchants. Feel free to have a listen. And if you're interested in all things Arsenal and Gooner-ish, check out Touchy Gooners, which comes out on a Thursday. I hope you enjoyed the pod, and we'll see you next week. Support for this episode has been provided by Ratio Keto-Friendly Crunchy Bars. If counting macros makes your head spin, count instead on a snack by Ratio. They've done the math for you, so you can spend less time studying the label and more time enjoying your day. Delicious and convenient, both their toasted almond and lemon almond flavors have two grams of net carbs and a unique combination of sugar and protein, all in a satisfying crunch. Interested? Ratio Keto-Friendly Bars are now available in the granola bar aisle at Walmart. Sports Social Podcast Network.